Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Lexi Kitten. That's my old stage name from my nine years as a sensual massage provider in the Bay Area. Now I'm retired, married, living in the Midwest, learning about permaculture and growing food. But I'm calling you now because two years ago, December 2nd, 2016, I lost my beloved friend Colette in the Oakland Warehouse fire to be loved by her and to love her has been such an incredible gift. I miss you, my friend. Chris Ryan, Lindsay Trossel here, listening to you from Indianapolis, Indiana, as I clean houses. I like to say I nurture homes, sacred spaces for people to come home and strip their layers of ego and expectation and return to their authentic self. Thank you for your conversations, your guests. You stay with me and you change me. All the best. Peace. Hey there, Chris. I'm uh, reaching out to you from Kathmandu, Nepal, um, where I've spent the last few months writing as a travel journalist. Um, <laughs> In a large part, honestly, thanks to your podcast. I took a year off a while ago, and I spent a lot of time you know, doing some menial labor jobs, and uh, listening to your podcast really just helped me keep my mind occupied during those long hours. And now I'm living the dream, getting paid to travel. So, hello from sunny Kathmandu. It's monsoon season. What's up, beautiful people? Thank you so much for those messages, Lexi, Lindsay, and unnamed travel writer listening to the rain in Kathmandu, Nepal. <clears throat> I remember when I got to Kathmandu, I felt it was like arriving some place that I had heard so much about. And, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know, Kathmandu, Timbuktu, um, Madagascar, Zanzibar, there, there are certain place names that are just so, they're just dripping with exoticism, you know, Kathmandu was one of those places. Plus there was a Bob Seger song about Kathmandu that I listened to when I was a kid. So it had some special appeal to it. Anyway, thank you so much for those. Uh, my God, Lindsay, I wish I could get you to come and clean my house. It sounds so beautiful the way you look at it. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I stripped down to my authentic self or not, but uh, yeah, it could definitely use some cleaning in here. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm a dude. I don't know how to do that stuff. I don't mean to be stereotyping there, but um, in any case, I, I'm not very good at cleaning. Uh, this week's episode is um, related to unnamed travel writer in Nepal because it's Adam Skolnick, who is a super cool guy who has traveled all over the world. He's a travel writer, 
and um, journalist. He's published in the New York Times, Men's Health, Outside, Wired, Salon, wherever, everywhere. Uh, he's also a free free diver. He's um, he, I was turned on to him by Kyle Tierman. He had him on uh, the Kyle Tierman show. So if you want to hear more from Adam, you, that's a place you can listen to him. And, do you hear that? I have a fucking cricket in my house. Do you know what I'm saying, Lindsay? I need someone to come, not only clean the house, but like get the bugs out of here. I have a cricket. I had a mouse in here the other day. And it ran under my printer and I moved the printer and the printer sort of slipped and fell a little bit. And there, the mouse was dead. Just, and it's not a, it's not a big printer. I couldn't believe it killed it. And that was kind of creepy because it was one of those cute mice with the big ears. You know, I felt bad about that. Uh, Adam Skolnick, right. So you can check him out at adamskolnick.com. His last name is spelled S-K-O-L-Nick. N-I-C-K, Adam Skolnick. Super cool guy. You're going to enjoy this conversation, I promise. I have to apologize for having been so out of touch. Uh, I'm a real slacker this month. I think I only posted, or last month, I only posted three episodes in November, which is probably the fewest I've ever posted in a month. Um, but my excuse is the fires and the evacuation and the fact that Kyle Tierman and I have been working very hard on the Motherfucker Awards. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the MotherfuckerAwards.com. It's happening Tuesday. Today is Sunday. I'll try to put this up tonight. So if you hear this right away, it's still not happened yet. But for most of you, it has already happened. So you can go to MotherfuckerAwards.com and you can see videos. Uh, we've got a film crew. It's going to be wild. Simon Rex is there. Uh, Brendan Walsh. Lots of comedians. Uh, important, well-known journalists. Matt Taibbi is flying in. The Rolling Stone journalist. All sorts of people. Uh, Ron Finley, the gangster gardener. Lots of people have been on my podcast are involved in it. Uh, some people who listen to the podcast have volunteered Ben and Jade uh, have been doing an incredible amount of work helping Kyle and the film crew. Um, Jade is a event planner and he's been organizing everything, printing signs, figuring out where to place the podium and renting things, running around. Uh, Ben's working in um, doing the graphic design. We've got these beautiful intros to each category. Um, it's just been fantastic. Like, Everything else in life, it's better because of you. People who listen to the podcast who reach out and say, hey, I love that. How can I help? Whether it's, you know, dude, come stay in my driveway and let's drink a beer, spark up a bowl. If you ever come through Ohio or whatever state you're living in, I appreciate those offers so much. I wish I could just spend the rest of my life driving around in the van you know, from driveway to driveway and, and meeting you all because it's really always the highlight of my life when I do get a chance to do it. Uh, and some of the people who live in L.A. have reached out and said, hey, I'm a graphic designer. I think Ben doesn't live in L.A., but he's flying in for it. And Jade lives here. And it's it's been great. I know I'm forgetting people. Those are just the two that um, come to mind right now. So anyway, this has been an amazing project. Truth be told, Kyle's doing 95% of the work. 
uh, which is the way it should be. He's young. He's 28 years old. Fuck that guy. You know, I mean, it's a professor grad student situation at this point. You can use my name, but you do all the work. I've earned that, right? Haven't I? I think so. So what's going on in the world? I don't know. I saw a woman uh, was complaining because a gate agent on Southwest Airlines was laughing when she saw the boarding pass for this woman's daughter because the woman's daughter's name is ABCDE. You name your kid ABCDE, you don't get to complain when people laugh. I mean, she should have just named her kid My Mother is a Fucking Idiot. Because, I mean, ABCDE is the A capital. I mean, it's not even a name. It's a fucking bad password is what that is. Come on. If you're going to have kids, you got to be beyond the stage where you're going to give them some kind of dopey ass novelty name. I mean, name, name your cat something like that. Cats don't give a fuck what you call them, right? Cats' friends aren't going to laugh at them in school. It's not going to be like a constant source of embarrassment when your cat's a teenager. Bad jokes you're going to hear your whole fucking life. Cats don't have to deal with that shit. You want to name something, you, you want to give it a dumbass name, like, yeah, go get a cat. I'm going to name my cricket ABCDE. How's that? I have a pet fucking cricket, apparently. I don't know. What else is going on? Uh, the the continual uh, demise of the Trump administration. I don't know. This is like the the slowest sinking ship ever. I, I can't believe it's still afloat. It seems like it's all just to distract us from other stuff. Anyway, that's going on. George Bush Sr. just died. Interesting to see all the wonderful commentary on what a decent man he was and so wonderful and totally ignore the fact that he was a backstabbing duplicious is that the word duplicitous uh sly ex-head of the cia probably instrumental in stealing Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 by meeting secretly with the Iranians and actually cutting a deal. This is conjecture. This hasn't been proven, but these guys don't do things you can prove. It has been proven that he met with Iranian delegation in Madrid a few months before the election and the Iranians held on to the hostages. Those of you who are under 30 probably don't remember any of this, but the Iranian revolution happened. They took over the American embassy and they took many American embassy workers hostage and they held them for months and months and months. And it made Jimmy Carter look weak and ineffective. But what the fuck could he do? Jimmy Carter is the only president who didn't kill anybody in four years. He didn't drop any bombs. So they had, I don't remember how many, 80 some, something like that, American hostages. How do you rescue 80 people who are being held in the capital city of a country that is in total chaos and considers the United States to be the great Satan? Kind of a tough gig. He did send some helicopters out in a mission and they got caught in a sandstorm and crashed. And so that made him look like even more of a pussy. 
And then apparently uh, the Iranians were considering, they were getting close to negotiating a deal where they were going to release the hostages. And the Reagan um, campaign, where George Bush was the vice presidential candidate, sent Bush to meet with them in Madrid and made a deal where they would not release the Americans until after the election. Because if they released them before the election, then everybody would rally around the president, who happened to be Jimmy Carter, and that would give him a big boost, and maybe he'd win a second term. So they actually, if this theory is correct, which I think it probably is, they actually negotiated with an enemy to hold American hostages longer in order to benefit the Reagan campaign. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Russian collusion? Does that sound like coordinating with a foreign power who is an enemy of the United States in order to benefit your presidential campaign? Sure sounds that way to me. And then what happened? Jimmy Carter looked like a pussy. Ronald Reagan won in a landslide. And the day of the inauguration, the day Ronald Reagan's little parade is happening in Washington, D.C., and there's the president and the first lady and the limousine coming down Pennsylvania Avenue and people, you know, thronging on every fucking network, every TV set around the world, scrolling across the bottom. The Republic of Iran releases the American hostages. The day, the hour of his inauguration. Coincidence? Fuck no. The narrative that they put into place was that the Iranians were so afraid of big bad Ronald Reagan that they better release those hostages because they knew that cowboy Ronnie was going to come and get him. That's fucking bullshit. Then a few years later, of course, it came out that there was a secret deal for the United States to sell missiles to Iran, our enemy, high-tech missiles. And then they took the money and they shoveled the money down to the death squads in Central America, American-trained and financed assassins who were killing nuns and priests and progressive politicians and teachers and people who were trying to form unions and build medical clinics in El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala. If you weren't there in the 80s, it's very easy to forget all this shit because it gets washed under the rug. Everyone talks about how great a president Ronald Reagan was. And now that Bush has died, oh, he was such a gentleman, such a decent, kind human being. Maybe, maybe to his friends down at the golf club. But you talk to some people in Central America, you talk to these caravans of refugees that are sitting in Tijuana right now trying to get into the United States. Why are their countries so fucked up? Is it just because Latin Americans don't know how to do anything right? Is it because they're genetically inferior? Or could it have something to do with a history, hundreds of years of Americans going in there and fucking up their countries, killing the smartest, most decent people in those countries, killing anybody who wants to try to lead the country in, a, in the direction of decency and human rights. Could it maybe have something to do with that? I'm reminded of a friend of mine who um, raises sheep 
And I said something about how ah, sheep are dumb, right? And he said, no, man, sheep are smarter than most animals. It's just that as soon as one of them shows any intelligence, we kill it. Because we don't want any smart sheep. Smart sheep find the weak points in the fence. Smart sheep figure out how to jump over it at certain places. Smart sheep will fuck shit up. They'll make more work for me. So as soon as I see some intelligence in one of those things, slit its neck. Well, it's not too much of a stretch to say that's the way American foreign policy has worked for quite a while. Which is why I have no fucking patience with these arguments of people like Sam Harris, who seem to think that militant Islam comes out of Arab genes or something. That Islam itself is the problem and, and, and totally disconnected from centuries of colonialism. Anyway, that's my rant for today. How did I get into that? Oh, because George Bush died. George Bush's niece was in my class at Hobart College. Her name was Diddle Bush. I don't know if that's the name her mother gave her. Uh, I don't know if she still goes by that. All I know is that's what she went by there. And all I can surmise from that is that the higher you go in the sort of ruling class hierarchy, the more dulled your sense of irony becomes until you get all the way up to the top and you don't realize that Diddle Bush sounds like masturbate. Actually means masturbate. <clears throat> That's all I can figure. Uh, otherwise, what? Her mother was like secretly a pervert and sort of slipped that name in there. I mean, it's better than ABCDE. I'll, I'll say that for it. Although also likely to get a laugh at the Southwest boarding gate. All right, that's enough for me. You can tell it's been a while since I've ranted. I've missed you. I've missed you, my captive audience who has to listen to whatever bullshit I throw out there. Uh, I have pink eye, conjunctivitis, I think. I wake up. I woke up a couple days ago. My eyes were all gummy and felt like I had sand in them. So I think that's, I think I have pink eye. I don't know where the hell I got it, but I have it. So I'm standing here talking to you with my eyes closed, believe it or not. Not that there's anything to look at, but. So it's just me and the cricket. Uh, A, B, C, D, E. I'm going to play you out with a song sent by a listener. Uh, I've played some of his music in the past, I believe. Let me find it here. Uh, Brett Newski. Yes, I've played something by him in the past. Anyway, this is a new record. Came out, well, newish. It came out in September. I'm sure he sent it to me around then, and I've just spaced it. <laughs> Sorry, Brett. Uh, uh, I've got how many? 623 starred messages in my inbox, meaning, hey, get back to this. <sighs> it's tough. Uh, I'm kind of falling behind, I think. Anyway, this is called Life Upside Down. Uh, there's really some really funny uh, YouTube videos. You should look them up on YouTube. Uh, there's a a video where they're playing i think it's this song they're playing it in a walmart and you can see like the security guys coming and dragging them out of the fucking walmart while they're playing very cool 
Brett Newski and the No Tomorrow. That's the name of the band. They bring a 90s alternative sound across America. He's played over 1,200 shows on every continent except Antarctica. Got to get him down to Antarctica. He's been supporting Violent Femmes, Pixies, Chuck Reagan, and the new Pornographers. Uh, This album is produced by Hutch Harris and engineered by Bo Sorensen, who also worked with Death Cab for Cutie, who I've heard of, but couldn't tell you anything about it. Um, Yeah, this song's called Ride. I dig it. Hope you do too. Brett Newski. Uh, You can look him up at brettnewski.com. That's B-R-E-T-T-N-E-W-S-K-I. And of course, the link, as always, for everything I play on this podcast will be at the episode page at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Let's uh, listen to that and then Adam Skolnick. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for supporting this podcast, however you do it. It's much appreciated. Sending you lots of love from my little cricket haven.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here in Topanga, California. My um, guest today is Adam Skolnick. Is that right? That's it. Skolnick, uh, who is, um, how do you describe yourself? Badass freelance journalist? I think that's how Kyle described me to yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just call myself like an author and journalist. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to call yourself badass. I don't that's, call myself badass. That's one of those things other people need to call you. <laughs> you can't call yourself genius. That. Yeah, unless you're a rapper, then sexy. I guess, but they yeah. don't use badass either. Yeah, that's that's sort of a white thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like I like badass though. I like it too. It's I'm always happy to be called a badass, but but I agree. Never call yourself a badass. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Although I do follow a guy on Instagram called Badass Vegan. He's one oh. of those. He's one of those uh, really great athletes that is vegan and is kind of promoting plant power. Oh, like yeah. um, the tennis dude, the Serbian. What's his yeah, name? Yeah, Djokovic. Djokovic. He's, yeah, he's vegan. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is he vegan? Yeah, I guess he's vegan. So, somebody was like um, paleo. Yeah, I mean they're all. Yeah, everyone's got a theory. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many food theories. Yeah. It should yeah. be simple, shouldn't it? <laughs> it food. Should be. Yeah. Uh, We're omnivores. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's my theory right yeah. there with, with everything. Yes. Um, yeah. I, Cassie and I are actually working sort of uh, early stages working on a book about uh, like a, th- a theory, overall theory, not just diet, but health and, and general. Uh, and it's sort of the thesis is like, um, laziness is good for you. Interesting. It's, ca- it's counterintuitive. It's not actually counterintuitive. It's very intuitive. Yeah. It's counter standard narrative. Right. I, you know, um, I think neuroscientists believe pras- procrastination is actually part of the creative process. Mm, sure. Um, this idea that you're kind of mulling it over. You're never really fully turning off that brain. Once, especially yeah. once you're on a creative project, as you know, it never really leaves you alone. Yeah. So you might not be at the computer doing it, but right. it's still kind of, uh, it's still happening. Especially for writing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Not writing is a huge part of writing. Yeah, right. It's the, for me, it's 99%. <laughs> it's the part I'm best at. Right, yeah, that's a, I'm so good at that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I really sort of load my energies into the uh, procrastination. The not writing part? Yeah. No, but it's true on multiple levels. One is, you know, it, it takes a lot of energy to start. And then once you start, the inertia is gone and you just kind of keep going. Um, I think unless I just misused inertia. But then... No, uh, I think you're right. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Um, and then sometimes when you are riding and then you pull back and you go take a hike or go for a run or whatever, or even just are out, like a solution to a problem will come when you're, right. not, when you're not at the keyboard. Exactly. So I think yeah. all of that is valid. Yeah, I think for me, writing is... Uh, someone asked Casilda once after Sex of Dawn came out uh, in an interview, they asked her about my writing um, process. Mm. And she said... Chris writes the way big dogs shit. He goes in circles for a long time and then eventually squats and everything comes out. (laughs) And I was like, all right, that's it. No more interviews. No. No No. more interviews. I'll do the talking from now on. (laughs) Not that she was wrong. Not that she was wrong. No, she was perfectly right. But uh, yeah, let's, let's work on our let's work on our messaging. Yeah, exactly. I need to spend more time squatting and less time going in circles. Yes. Um, but yeah, I I think of writing as like um, 
kind of like uh, what you were saying about inertia is like uh, mining or something. Mm. Like it takes me, I don't know, maybe an hour to get down the shaft to where the new rock is being chipped. Yes. Um, and then then, I, then I'm getting some work done. But then if I have to come up, you know, because the phone rings or I got to deal with the plumber or I got to go out and run some errands or whatever. I don't go straight back down to the rock. I'm back up at the surface mm-hmm. again. It's going to take me another hour to get back down mm-hmm. to where I was. So for me, if I'm writing something, it's important, like long days at it. Yes. You know, I can't, I'm not one of these, like I read these people who are like, yeah, I just worked on the book, you know, when I was on the train going into work no. or, you know, I come home from work and I go sit out in the, in the bathroom for 20 minutes or something like I can't do that. It, Interesting. It doesn't work. For yeah. Me. I mean, everyone has their process up for me. It's like word quota per day when I'm working on something. Mm. And so then what's your, what's your aim? Your target? 3000 words. That's usually. a lot. Yeah, three thousand yeah. words, but you know, it's because I it's it's all depends. I think on the background that you got into. Mm. Like, if if writing for me, when I first really started to take my productivity up a notch, it was when I started doing Lonely Planet travel guides. I've done like thirty five of them, right. but my first one, um, the timelines are so short. You know, you have you have about two months to in this part of Indonesia, I was going all over and I had two months to do all the research. And then I had about a month to write it based on the schedule that I'd kind of put together. And this guy, Ian Stewart, who's done a bazillion Lonely Planets and, and Rough Guides, um, was kind of my mentor on it. it was my first project. And he said, shoot for 3000 words a day. And at the time, that sounded like crazy to me because I'd never even approached anything like that. Um, but doing a lot, you know, for a long time, that was my bread and butter. It was 90% right. of my income. And so doing three of those contracts a year, you just build up that muscle to where it is doable. So right. at first it took maybe 10 hours to get 3000 words done by the time I was done. And then some days now it's five or six hours. Mm. So it just depends. Um, and if that's your goal, then I can do that anywhere. I remember when I was working on the free diving book, I was in Hollywood staying with a friend of mine and we, we go swim and dive, uh, point doom all the time. And he, and you know, I have these long days. If I didn't get enough done in the morning, I couldn't go. And he said, you know what, why don't you just sit in the back seat and write on the way there and back? And I did that like a a bunch of times. And Mm. so then I could get a few hundred words in. And and so I could do it that way. Um, But I couldn't do the whole book that way, obviously. So I think the long day, you're right. It is still a long day. It's just getting the words in when you can. And it depends on the type of writing, too. A a guidebook is more informational. You just want to make sure you don't make mistakes. You've already done the research. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I I traveled a lot in my 20s and 30s, and I always use Lonely Planet guidebooks. I, Man, thank you for those. (laughs) I don't know how many of yours I've used. Yeah. um, But certainly used them in Thailand in the 80s and 90s and uh, Indonesia. Yeah, that's Sumatra. when Lonely Planet first like really got its name and yeah, reputation. It really hit seventies, eighties for yeah. sure, and nineties. And yeah, I did the Andaman coast of Thailand several times for Lonely Planet, dri- driving from Malaysia to Burma and back. Mm, yeah, and doing all of that. Basically. I have a buddy who lives on uh, Koh Phayam. Okay, Phayam. Phayam. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Island. Gulf side. Yeah, yeah, really nice. Yeah, beautiful. 
No, that's the Andaman oh, side. Yeah, yeah. It's just. Oh below. no, Kopayam. Yeah, it's the yeah, north, north, it's north. Yeah, near north Andaman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've been there several times. Yeah, yeah. It's, I was oh, there. That's nice. Yeah, I was there maybe six years ago, the okay. last time, and it was. I don't know what it's like now, but it was at that point. It was like perfect state of development. Yes. No cars. Yes. Um, just sort of sidewalks that you ride these yes. motorbikes on, little Vespas and. Last time I was there, the water was just too warm, though. It you could warm, feel yeah. climate change there. Like, yeah. the water's not supposed to be 88 degrees in the ocean or 86, whatever. A lot it was. of bioluminescence yeah. when we were there. Yeah. Is, but, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I feel, you know, that's where you feel the, in the tropics is where you feel that climate change really kind of like the, the, the electric edge of it mm. like starting to happen whether you know coastal erosion in right. places i've been several times where the beaches are kind of fully getting eroded and then uh water temperature yeah yeah you spent a lot of time in thailand thailand yep indonesia indonesia yeah both. i've only been to sumatra I, oh yeah that's yeah, the only island i've been to that was like 80 eight or something wow that must have been an interesting interesting time to be yeah, there it's yeah. pretty raw yeah pretty wild i took a Let's see, I went, I was in, uh, it was part of a big long trip, all India, Nepal, Thailand, down through Malaysia and to some, to Singapore. And I found this boat that was going up, uh, from Singapore It crossed the, you know, whatever the straits of whatever that is there. And, um, then it went up this river into the heart of Sumatra. Yes. Um, where the orangutans are to, yeah. yeah well I went there later Medan yes that's up north more and there's another river up yeah the Bu- yeah. yeah 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 and then Bukatingi yeah Bukatingi yeah that's right on the equator yeah, I think yeah um, but yeah, I, so I sort of rode, it was weird. They gave me this, this like hole. It was like a slave ship, man. It was like really, really intense. And like, I wasn't going to stay in that hole. So I went up to the roof and I rigged uh, like a tarp between these antenna supports up on the roof, and they let me sit up there. And uh, then some French dude came up, and we hung out. It was like four or five days going up this river. Crazy, was, yeah. It was real sort of to hard get to the mission. other side of Sumatra, so you could take a ferry to. Well, we didn't go to the other. I didn't go to the other side. This boat went up to some town. I don't remember mm-hmm. the town. If I looked on a map, I could probably figure it out. But it sort of went up to near Bukatingi, or maybe it was Bukatingi. Okay. Was sort of in the heart, in yeah. the center there. Um, but it was so wild. I mean, I remember uh, you know, just sort of chugging along. And I remember um, there were uh, uh, fireflies. Mm. Like, I grew up in Pennsylvania where mm. there are lots of fireflies, and they sort of light randomly. Yeah. You know? This the whole tree lit at once. Amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah, you see yeah, the yeah. whole tree just light up. Yeah, it was man. So cool. Sumatra is amazing. It's so yeah. it's so interesting and rich, and and the, the you know the food is great, but it's also like you know, yeah. it can be tough on the yeah. system. Yeah. Um, I've been to Sumatra a couple of different times. I, I really like West Sumatra, um, but the, the, you know when I was there last development still was like the slowest i think in all of indonesia because mm. it's so big right and and uh, there's all sorts of reasons but it's so big and yeah. and it's you know there's been a lot of logging there there's there's problems and development problems there that aren't easily solved yeah um you know indonesia's has changed so much in the last several years though i'd be interested to see how sumatra is now yeah but um lake toba you go there? lake toba i did when yeah. i was there it was kind of like down on its luck like uh, people stopped going there really? but um but now it's it's getting better i've heard 
people it's, are back. It's the, the most Islamic island. It is. It's um, well, you have Aceh in the far north, which is has had Sharia law. Right. It's changed and reformed a little bit recently since the uh, separatist, you know, since the, re- the rebellion. I mean, it was basically an open rebellion for yeah. years. Yeah. And since that peace agreement, I think they reformed somewhat. But I remember meeting uh, professional soccer guys from Africa who were living in Aceh and, and playing for the team there. And he was telling me about this one uh, situation where like a local development worker who had come there uh, after the tsunami, because Aceh is where the tsunami really uh, destroyed the entire coastline. 150,000 people dead, I think. Um, He was there, and he'd fallen in love with some Sumatran woman who was married, and so there was this big adultery thing, and they got uh, tried and then put into like the town square and, and caned in front of all these people. He was watching it from his apartment, like looking down. Oh, it wasn't him. No, no, no. It was, he was watching the whole thing. And he said, that was just mental to see that. And, you know, in in West Sumatra, um, they, they, Padang, which is the main town in West Sumatra. Uh, I remember they, they would put, you know, kids who would like go off to some hourly hotel because they they live at home. There's no place. There's no disposable income. You know, if they're going to want to hook up and have fun, these are just, you know, regular kids like you and me were when we were 18, 19. So if they want to hook up, they go to these hourly motels, but those cheap motels are often run by Islam, like super Islamists. And they'd call the cops and the cops would call the pre- the newspapers. And these people would take the picture, not of the man, but of the young woman and put her on the front page, like, kind of like a scarlet letter type thing. That was still happening. That was the last time I was there though. Yeah. So I don't know if that's still going on, but you know, Indonesia still has that that element. You know, beer yeah. was outlawed for a hot minute in Indonesia. Do you remember that whole no, thing? Yeah, no. like a f- couple of years ago. And mm. so, you know, there was a left pushback. But beer, you couldn't find beer. When I was there in 2015 in Java, I wanted a beer after a long hike of a volcano. They took me to this, to this little shop and the beer was hidden under like towels in the back, like beer. Warm. So that still happened. That was in 2015. That'll fuck up your tourism. I mean, no. Well, beer that's in why. Bali? Well, they were doing that in Bali, and then the, that's there was a big. You know, Bali was saying, "Hey, we're a Hindu island. This is bullshit," and they basically rescinded it for Bali. Oh. I mean, they're they're pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I uh, I was traveling for part of that trip. My girlfriend came and joined me in Thailand, mm. and she's uh, Puerto Rican, and um, you know, dark skin, dark hair. And, uh, you know, everybody thought she was local. Mm. And so in Thailand, there was no problem. They just thought, you know, there's a local girl with a white guy. Typical. It happens all the time. Yeah. Then we got to Malaysia. I remember the first restaurant we walked into in Malaysia. It was northern Malaysia, right? Which is like, at least at that point, it was very Muslim. Mm. And we walked in. All conversation stopped. And as we were walking to a table, some guy spit on the floor in front of us because hmm. it's like white guy local girl not cool man interesting yeah 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 you know i've never had in indonesia i've never had that kind of vibe what always hit me when i was there in 2004 for the first time in sumatra and you go into these really kind of poor towns um that don't have a whole lot they're they're rural towns farming is the main income and you know, like the sewer lines are going right into the river. I mean, it's not it's not the healthiest development situation. Yeah. And yet they're building a fourth mosque, 
you know, with with the money they have. Mm. And I just found that I, ca I can't imagine being born like gay yeah. in a village like that, which yeah. you know happens. Sure. And like, what do you, how do you feel about that? Or even just like we said, just a woman. So not to judge it. I'm not judging. I'm not, I'm no Islamophobe because, you know, it's different depending on where you go. The interpretation West Sumatra just happens to be a place where it is interpreted pretty pretty strictly well and that money for the mosque is probably coming from saudi arabia could be you know they do a lot of that with the uh, wahhabi could spreading be. the wahhabi islam i mean they're raising money for it though on the streets when yeah. you drive by could yeah. be i mean i don't i didn't really look into it i was there kind of looking into um different ways to monetize agriculture and like shade grown crops so they don't destroy so the the mm. timber companies can't go in there and, and basically uh, there's a lot of illegal logging in sumatra from malaysian timber companies that would come in and bribe village leaders and then just just decimate the forest to the detriment of the community right. so there were these kind of bankers that thought they'd solved it with something called forest trade um to like basically market sumatran coffee which is now available everywhere so it has worked mm. yeah yeah, the southern half of the island is just like impenetrable swamp, right? Mm, that's right. I didn't go to the southern yeah, Sumatra. I don't think yeah. anyone does. No, There's no, no. nowhere to go. West Sumatra is where a lot of surfers go. Yeah, Nias. Yeah, Nias yeah. And, and the Mentawis. Yeah. Yeah, Mentawi yeah. Islands. That's a famous place for the surfers. Mm -hmm. And that's all out of Padang. Padang is famous for food, for Padang food and really good chili crab. And um, there's some amazing, I mean, Sumatra has some amazing stuff. Sulawesi is amazing. I've been to about 50 islands in Indonesia. Really? Yeah. So I, and my, my beat was mostly Southeast Indonesia. Right. Like I've flown into Kupang, West Timor, probably <laughs> like the third most frequented airport in my entire life. <laughs> really? Yeah. Isn't that weird? That is weird. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. yeah, and Timor was the Portuguese colony, right? That's right. And they, they had a big uprising there. And The whole southeast, so Nusa Tenggara, Timor, which is a string of islands from um, Flores down to West Timor. And Tim West Timor, if you're looking at a map, is kind of the one that's almost kissing Australia. Right. I mean, there's still the Sumba Strait there and all that. And, and um so anyway, so those islands, a lot of that was Portuguese. So it was fought between Portuguese and Dutch for a long time. Right. And so there was that Portuguese influence. There's Christianity there. It's, it's got a different mix, a different feel. Um, but uh, yeah, and West Timor and East Timor. So West Timor is, is Indonesia. East Timor is an independent country. Mm, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to go. We're sort of planning a trip to, to Asia at this point, um, maybe in the next year six months and uh i'd like to go back to indonesia I, yeah man I, I really liked it cool even though i'll be traveling with a brown woman again but uh, that won't be a problem yeah. man indo's indo's really ha indo is has always been really hospitable hmm. yeah i don't think you'd ever have a problem with that yeah. yeah no i i like the people and i like the food I, lo I love Thailand too. I, I, Thailand's I've fantastic probably been to thailand 15 i would times. be surprised if in malaysia that was a problem these days yeah. Huh, really? Yeah. yeah. They've chilled out more. Yeah, yeah. You know, Malaysia's really developed, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I liked um, Penang. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the food there was fantastic. Yeah. And I, I remember that was where I got attacked by monkeys in the botanical garden. <laughs> Spit at by locals, attacked by monkeys. <laughs> exactly. No wonder you went to Sumatra. Gotta get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so you really kind of, like, I was reading your, your webpage this morning yeah. and how you got into writing and all this. I, you know, it's all very familiar to me because, you know, I was one of these guys, like my whole life was traveling. Mm. Like I, when I was in college, I went to Alaska. People who listen to this podcast have heard me tell the story, but you know, I thought I was going to grad school and you know, get a PhD and blah, blah, blah. 
and I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska and got a job in a cannery and just had this amazing adventure. And in the course of that adventure, I realized I don't want to go to grad school. I don't want to do anything except travel around the world. And very similar to what you wrote in your bio on your webpage, which yep. is, say it. Yeah. So I was in. Uh, no, I mean the, the link. I oh, adamskolnick.com. Adamskolnick, S-K-O-L-N-I-C-K. That's it. Dot com. And then my, all my handles are just at Adam Skolnick. It's nice to have an unusual name. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did Chris Ryan. He was like, take it, take it, take it, take it. Christopher Ryan, take it, take it, take it. Christopher P. Ryan, take it, take it. Like, fuck. So I ended up doing Chris Ryan, Ph.D., and then people started making fun of me. Oh, Mr. Doctor. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has to know about you. Like, oh, fuck. And then my buddy Duncan Trussell changed his handle to Duncan Trussell PhD just to fuck with me. <laughs> like, oh, damn. Uh, it's tough out there in the web tough. world. Yeah, hang out with comics. You're going to get your ass That's it. Too. That's it, man. Um, but, you know, like you, I, I, uh, I had this moment where I was like, you know, I don't want to do anything until I get out there in the world and see what's happening. Yeah. Because school sure as fuck didn't really tell me. No. You know? And yeah. So so during that time, it was like, how am I going to make a living? Right? right. And this is before the internet. Right. I actually did pursue writing a guidebook. Okay. And I got offered the gig. I forget what country it was. Might have been Argentina? Or somewhere in South America, I forget. I forget the country. Honestly, I was living in Spain at the time. I corresponded. It was uh, Insight Guides. Yeah, kind of high end. Yes, lots yes. of nice photos. They're still around. Yeah, but I mean, I, it was like a ton of work, and I think it was like ten grand or right, something. Right, right, right. Are you fucking kidding me? So yeah. only only Lonely Planet really has competitive rates. I found really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been, I've of been offered work from other companies here and there, and it just never made sense financially. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're they're a lot of them are preying on people like I was, like desperate to travel right, and make a at, little money. Look at the internet now, like what how little people are getting paid for these stories on yeah. digital platforms. Yeah, it's basically the same shit. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Anyway, so you found a way to do it. I mean, I I yeah. tried to sell photos, I you know some feature stories or whatever, yeah. but I ended up just like go to New York, make a bunch of money, then hit the road again. You know, smart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what was available. Well, and the cannery is part of that too, right? You sure. Could, you the, could make like twenty yeah. grand in two months or three months. Or something yeah. And get yeah. Out of there. I, mean, I mean, this was eighty three. And I think I made, I was making like, I don't know what it was, 1500 bucks a week. Yeah, I mean, Um, but that's pretty good money for... for, and living on nothing. I was living in my tent. Right. And then the next year I worked on a boat and that was even better. Better, yeah. Financially. But yeah, and then people were like doing the crab season, which was like 10 grand a week. Okay. But 10% chance of sinking. (laughs) 10% chance of death or disfigurement. Yeah. Which you, when that's too high well when you're 24 what? it's like eh, maybe i'll go you're for like it. that won't happen to me yeah i mean i'm young i'm strong i'll swim to shore yeah, like, yeah no you won't buddy <laughs> no yeah. yeah um yeah no i found a way to do it i mean i um i was in kilimanjaro i was in tanzania and heading towards to climb kilimanjaro and um i was in a couple of weeks before the climb i went over to zanzibar and i'd been reading this Islands magazine feature on Zanzibar and, and I finished reading it. I'm on this I found this little place right on the on the sand there. 
And I was like, man, this is it. Like, what am I doing? Because I was working in nonprofits in the environmental world. Like, I never mm. really did the corporate deal. I never, I right. never really had a high paying, I never, not never really, I never had a high paying like regular day job. Right. So I liked the work I was doing. I always wanted meaningful work. Like right. I, to me, it just never made sense to go for the money. Um, I never really have. So when I was there though, I was thinking this guy wrote this, this story and it was great. And I, I looked at this contributor page and I saw him there and I looked at him and I said, why the fuck does this guy get to do this shit? Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I wait? Why can't I do this shit? And so I, I did that trip. And I came back and I walked Wilshire, Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards from beginning to end and wrote a story about it. Oh, really? And, and that got me my first commission to do a walk through East L.A. for a now defunct L.A. publication. Hmm. And uh, that publication was only only lived like a three month life. And literally, if I didn't show up after like several <laughs> calls to get my paycheck. If I didn't show up when they were literally carrying boxes out of the office, I never would have got my check, but I did get my check. And, um, it was like 150 bucks. It was my first like professional writings experience. So that was 1999. You put them out of business. I personally, yeah, I destroyed the publication so bad. <laughs> it's, it was so, it was so clunky. It was yeah. supposed to be like the series of Adam walking around LA and it lasted. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to sink the entire operation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did that once. I, you I, sunk an operation. I did. Yeah. yeah. Which operation? It was in Barcelona. It was uh, it was um, a magazine, like a, not a magazine. I don't know. Yeah, I guess a magazine, like, an like, like a monthly expat magazine. Yeah. There's one called the Bar- Barcelona Metropolitan, I think, um, and I think that's still running. Um, but that was sort of like for. It started out cool, but then it migrated toward like, you know, oh, your company sent you to Barcelona, you know, and ads for real estate. Right. And places send your kids to school and health insurance. And so it was very sort of suburban, you know, a housewife from Wisconsin. Like, how is she going to be comfortable in Barcelona kind of audience? Came glossy rather than LA Weekly like. Yeah, exactly. And so then I one night I was in a bar and I saw this new free thing there and it was more downtown it was hip it was cool and it's kind of like the because there's a lot of barcelona at least in those days it was more sort of cutting edge funky not tourist related you Mm. know and so i contacted the editor and uh said hey you know i at that time i was writing a i had a page in the spanish high times it's called nice what was it called canyamo was the name of the (laughs) magazine nice yeah and uh, and they just like gave me a page, They're like do whatever you want, man. You get a page a month, and so I was writing these columns about um, like the origins of the counterculture mm. that Spanish kids wouldn't have known about, mm. like Timothy Leary, yeah, right, Aldous Huxley, right. And, oh fuck, I love that um, shit. You know, so uh, the Beatles, I you know, like shit. so every month I would just focus on like here's some cool shit that you probably don't know about because you're a 25 year old Spanish pothead, right? But will be interesting to you, you right? Know? And um, so for the special year end, um, like special edition, they have this thick one they would put out i wrote this long article about 
the relationship of psychedelics and Christmas. Mm. And there's all this stuff about mushrooms grow under pine trees and, you know, the red and white um, Amanita muscaria and reindeer eat the mushrooms. And then <laughs> reindeer piss is actually psychoactive. Oh, no. Because Amanita muscaria, the, the psychoactive component isn't removed by metabolism. So there's all this shamanism, the, the lapse of... Nor- of so does that mean it's like the stuff it's pissing on become, <laughs> becomes... Well, if you licked it, um, but <laughs> if, also if. like shamans would sometimes eat Amanita muscaria and then they're, like people would drink their piss and trip. Crazy. And be like, that dude is magical. His piss makes me trip. You right. Know? Um, but if you eat the meat of mushrooms, of a uh, reindeer who have eaten Amanita muscaria, you'll trip. Really? So the whole flying reindeer, reindeer thing is related. So, so there's this argument to be made that like the whole like Christmas tradition, a lot of it um, is related to shamanic use of psychedelics. Amazing. So I wrote this article for them, right? Great. And they translated it into Spanish. And then I saw this cool magazine. And so I, I contacted them and I was like, look, I have this article that I've already written in English the rights in Spanish are gone, but if you guys want it for your year-end Christmas thing, I'll give it to you just because I like what you're doing and want to help you, you know? And uh, so the editor contacted me, uh, this Indian woman, and she was like, fuck, yeah, send it. So I sent it to her, and she was like, oh, we'd love to publish this. And, you know, how would you like to, like, contribute regularly? And I was like, well, I'm in grad school. I'm doing this thing about sexuality. And, like, I could do a... I could do a sex advice column based on Darwinian theory hmm. and we'll call it Ask Dr. Darwin. And she's like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Because um, it had to tie into what I was already doing. Right. I don't want to do extra work, right? And this is a long story. But basically uh, what happened was we started talking, you know, emailing about, um, you know, I'm like, come on, ask me some questions to get it rolling. And she, oh, I'm not going to ask you. And I was, so I'm sort of flirting with her a little bit through, I've never met her, right? Just right. email. Like, well, you know, ask some of your friends and like, give me some juicy questions to get started. And then I get an email out of nowhere from some dude saying, hey, back off, stop flirting with your boss and just do your goddamn job. <laughs> And I'm like, what? <laughs> who the fuck are you? And he's like, it doesn't matter who I am. You just do your job and, you know, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, asshole. You're like, I, first of all, fuck you. Secondly, I'm doing this for free because I want this magazine to succeed. And thirdly, fuck you again. Right. right? And anyway, turns out that's her boyfriend. Well, of course. He's hacked into her fucking email. Oh, really? And then I get an email from her like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I was traveling. I was in London and he did. And we we're having these issues and da, 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 and the whole thing. And, and he was like the main investor. And then they broke up. And then the <laughs> Oh, whole you really thing, did sink the operation. <laughs> I didn't get one fucking column written or published before the whole magazine folded. Yeah. Oh, it was and you, were try- you really did try to help them. Oh. <laughs> Nice work. Don't ever offer me any help. <laughs> Ask Dr. Darwin. And then I ended up sleeping with her for, oh, at least for you, years. At least that one. Oh, for years? Yeah. Oh, that's good. And she gave me one of his sweaters. I used to wear that sweater all the time. <laughs> was she American? Uh, no, she... Well, yeah, she was. She yeah. was Indian-American. Yeah. 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 Then she moved to New York and went to grad school, and I don't know where she is now. Mm. If you're listening, yeah. If you're those listening, are magical days. I, I'm not going to say her name, but um, I remember it. Anyway, uh, so those are those are our like we've destroyed publications 
<laughs> stories. We've covered that. Wait, just for the record, I'm not sure I did the. Dis- <laughs> I think they had a bad publication. You had a good one. Well, it was fledgling. <laughs> but if you, if I think that if your entire operation is uh, pinned to one investor, you're yeah. probably eventually fucked. Who you're fucking. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, yeah. that really is kind of a good metaphor to all these really well-meaning publications that are out there now owned by rich tech guys. Mm. You know, even fucking Washington Post. Like, what happens if these big money people can't figure out how to make their investments make money yeah. and they get tired of dumping cash into them? Right. It's kind of scary, but um, but that's, you know, that's all over. There's so many good publications that are really just propped up by one wealthy investor. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully sex is not involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I think Washington Post is safe, but like yeah. you think about Intercept or uh, I think... I don't know if Vox is one of them, but there's you know there's a handful. Who's who's on. behind Intercept? God, that's the Glenn I, I Greenwald thought it was. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Glenn G- Greenwald thing. Um, Matt Tiabi was supposed to be part of that, wasn't he? He was doing like a separate vertical that was part of that same group. Right. It's Pierre. Omi, I think it's Pierre. Omi, like I'm spacing on his yeah, last name. But some yeah. rich French French dude. No, I think he's. I think he's North American, but it's oh, like Montreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. it was PayPal, but I'm not sure where uh, his money came from. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, and then Matt Taibbi somehow that whole thing collapsed. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't There's remember some, how. Some, but I, I tend to side with Matt Taibbi on stuff because yeah. I, I really love his work and I think he's a stellar journalist. I do too. And he's not. In a, I mean, yes, his stuff can be it's not opinionated though it's based in fact mm. so like a lot of intercept stuff seems to be coming from a various point of view yeah and, and everything is built towards the point of view right whereas even taibi stuff even though it can be subversive and and acerbic it's not like he he has all the facts lined up you know it's yeah. it is still journalism so yeah. i think um you know i tend to think that he's probably in the right on that one. Yeah, no, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I would just by default. I uh, trust Taibbi. Uh, unless someone shows me he's wrong, yeah. I would just assume he's right. Yeah, yeah me too. He seems, and he's gone up against like big, powerful interests. Yeah, and as far as I can see, nobody's ever, you know, proven him wrong. Exactly, on his financial stuff. Exactly, and he doesn't, and he doesn't need them as much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he's. He's mainstream, if anything. And what I remember is the people that were working for him all came out in support of him. Right. And so they were trying to throw him under the bus. That you know. Oh, well, there was, was also the, like, like a sex that. scandal. That came later. That, yeah, that was a separate that, issue. But that wasn't a sex scandal. That was the he was like a, a lead editor at an expat magazine in, in Moscow. Moscow. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so then there was this kind of Me Too blowback against yeah. him and the other guy. Um, but it wasn't from nobody said he'd done anything. It was from what they'd written. Right. There was like they wrote about some crazy parties where people right. were fucking in the office and whatever. Yeah. And, and somebody tried to like bring him down for that. And it's it's unfortunate because he had this great Eric Garner book that really went into the entire Eric Garner case. That's the can't I can't breathe choke oh, out right, case in Staten right. Island. That that book completely got sunk really? from um from that scandal huh. and. uh it's unfortunate because it's a great book. And um, look, I don't know the details about Moscow and any of that, but he's still writing for Rolling Stone. And for, I think I'm with you. From what I could tell, it was these weird fiction with fact um, stories that they published at yeah. that time. And 
and that's just the way it is. But you know, yeah. in these days, it's um, the outrage comes from a real place, and and it's not controlled. So it's it's. I think that's just the way we're living. Mm. So you know, uh, he got he got some heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In- interesting how like how, like now the the filtering is such that it's almost like running for public office. You can't be. It's very hard to be in the public eye at all if you're not absolutely squeaky clean. Because any time you offend a powerful interest they'll come at you with whatever the fuck they've dug up. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, like Elliot Spitzer. Right. Like, I mean, dumbass. Come on, dude. You're yeah. going up against these Wall Street guys and yeah. you're you with a hooker. You know, I can't, mean. Can't really defend. I mean, he was a great fighter. He was great. He was like, it's, a, it's actually a great point because he was basically doing, in the legal sense, what Taibbi was doing from a journalistic exactly. sense, going after these entrenched interests. Exactly. And now I have to look at fucking Goldman Sachs promoted things on, on my Twitter where, uh, you know, the, the CEO is interviewing like fancy people and trying to come off as like some arbiter of culture and media. And those motherfuckers are bloodsuckers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, <laughs> I actually got into it with some douchebag in a purple Bentley yesterday. <laughs> How many of them are driving around in LA? Yeah, well, in Brentwood, more than one, I'm sure. Purple Bentley? Yeah, like this guy wanted to cut, cut in on me. And, and I mean, it's a ridiculous story. I mean, nothing really happened, but this guy wanted to come in, cut in on me. And I looked at him, and I, I have to be honest, I'm prejudiced against billionaires. I yeah. mean, there's probably a couple nice ones out there, but yeah. I, I'm prejudiced against billionaires. As yeah, a by rule. default, you yeah. can assume they're dicks. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. They're just, you know, if you're a millionaire, even if you're 999. I still would probably like you better than, than the billionaire guy. <laughs> you not you just have too much shit. Yeah. So this guy's like uh wants to encroach in on the lane and I'm not really a road ragey guy, but I looked over at him and uh and I just said fuck that and I I kind of went around and just solidified my place. Right. And he and I and I look over again and he looks at me and he starts like giving me all this kind of shit. And I'm like and I just told him to go fuck himself. Were your windows down? No, I just looked over at him, but he, he no, saw what I said. Yeah, I said, yeah, go yeah. fuck yourself, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. And and then he said something to me, and I said something back. And I was literally about to get out of the car. And then I, and I thought better of it, and he's honking at me. And so then green light happens, and I go. And he proceeds to come in behind and cuts everybody else off because he wanted to make a left turn. So he wanted to cut me off and right. cut everybody else off go so he was exactly what we thought he was yeah yeah and uh but anyway so taibi's doing that in a more real sense <laughs> and spitzer was doing that yeah. but then he you know you can't do that shit and uh and be on a hooker's call list yeah <laughs> yeah you can't do that shit. No, I mean, you make uh, Anthony Weiner's another one. He was doing some good shit politically and then like he was really? i mean i will say that um, no one really talks about this. Hillary should have fired his wife. There should never have been a point where he could fuck that whole thing up. Right. <laughs> there should never have been a point where he could fuck the whole thing up. And if she can't get rid of him after two dicey shit things, yeah. like I, I'm not saying the, the first revelation, fine. You know, she tries to reconcile. She loves him. The second deal 
okay, it's Carlos Danger. I still haven't watched that. Have you watched the documentary about, about him running no, for mayor? No, I haven't. It's supposed to be amazing. Yeah. 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 And so Carlos Danger Should happens. She still, she still doesn't, she still doesn't get rid of him. Carlos At that Danger. point, Hillary's just got to do some damage control. Just say, Huma, you can't, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get you off to the side for a little while. Yeah. Because yeah. the fact is she was still with him. Yeah. And, and he and, fucking, the whole thing happened. I mean, I don't think Trump wins without that. That's yeah. That was like two weeks before the right. election or something. Right. That whole thing yeah. came out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy. Plus, she's like, what? Her parents are Saudi or something. And I mean, there was Is already right? a lot of reason I don't know to much play about with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huma Abedin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, enough about politics. Although it's good to talk to someone who's tuned into it. I, I'm unfortunately too tuned into it. I am too. I had to tune out for a minute. Yeah. But I, I think this whole thing could really come back to um, Rob Ford. Too many of us loved Rob Ford Rob in Toronto. Ford. I used to love Rob the Ford crack stories. Smoking. The crack smoking man. Yeah. <laughs> I used to love Rob Ford. Yeah. They couldn't fire him from the mayor of Toronto because they have some weird constitution. They couldn't get rid of this guy and he's turning up like like blotted out of his mind on crack and alcohol at like three in the morning pizza shops. And then, and now we have like a worse version. We have a sober version of Rob Ford yeah. as our president. Good point. I never <laughs> thought of that. That's obscure. Rob, your... Did he die? Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. But his brother is still like right, trying his to consolidate power. Cavorting around. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. A similar character. Oh yeah. Yeah. But not, not the style right. of Rob Ford. <laughs> Like if Chris Farley were mayor yes. of Toronto. I liked Rob. I mean, I hated him, but I loved the Rob Ford stories. Well, I mean, there is a similarity, I mean, what you're pointing to, but I, on, on a maybe a deeper level than what you're pointing to directly is like there is something really charming about someone in the public eye who says, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I don't give a well, fuck. Sure. That's the appeal. And that's the appeal of Trump, right? right. It's right. like he does give a fuck, but he pretends he doesn't. And that's enough for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you I know? mean, he, certainly that's how he won the Republican nomination. I yeah. remember watching those debates thinking it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. But I was scared the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to admit, I read up to the election. I was like, this, this will never happen. This can't happen. Well, the day of the election, I didn't think it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, was I wrong. And then I'm in Hawaii doing a Lonely Planet job. I'm in Kauai and I go into this dive shop and I'm just bullshitting with these guys. And his guy's wife comes out of the back office and says, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon in Hawaii. And she, he goes... She goes, Trump won early voting in Hawaii. And I thought, Hawaii? And I thought, we are fucked. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. And from then on, the news just got worse. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad. I was on a cruise ship. Uh, you ever heard of the Summit Series? Yes. So they invited me to, to give a talk on this cruise that they do out of Miami. Mm. And uh, this was the first of, I think, three nights. And... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's one of these things talking about like, you know, exploitative business models. It's one of these deals where they they blow a bunch of smoke up your ass and have you come and then they charge lots of money to VC dudes who come and like do a lot of networking and it's like Ted, mm. you know, you're the entertainment, mm -hmm. right? And like um, a floating Aspen conference kind yeah, of. Thing. But yeah, but they don't pay you anything. Right, right, right. So I only went because Wim Hof and uh, Graham Hancock and uh, some Esther Perel and some people that I know and like were going to go. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, well, I'll get to hang out and have dinner together. Turns out we never got to hang out at all because they're running us all around 
you know, squeezing us dry for their clients. Bummer. Yeah, it was total bullshit. Sorry, Summit Series, but <laughs> never doing that again. And plus, you, you had to eat cruise food. Cruise you're eating food. cruise food. You're on this giant <laughs> cruise ship, and the 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 way it was sold was we were going to go out to some island that they own, some, yeah. and have this beautiful lunch. And then it was like, oh, sorry, the island's not available. Whatever weather thing. So, so we're on this giant cruise ship, listening to all these like tech bros talk about how their app's going to save the world. <laughs> That's just, be a just going in a fucking circle, this is, spewing carbon into the in air. In a circle. Just in a circle. We didn't go anywhere. We just went out in the ocean for three days and came back to Miami because it would have cost them more money to just stay docked in Miami. You got to get that ship off the dock, right? So we just went in a circle. It was a total global fuck. Jesus. Earth fuck. It yeah. reminds me of uh, that David Foster Wallace story. Did you ever you ever read that the supposedly uh, fun thing that I'll never uh, do I'll again? never do again? Yeah. There you go. There you go, yeah. listeners. Go find that That's motherfucker. Good, and then there's one about tennis in the same collection. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. It's really good. He's got a great yeah. collection. You could probably find that one story online somewhere. Yeah. There's the longer version in the book, and then there was the short version that actually ran somewhere. Yeah. And then the longer the version, which is yeah, yeah, and a longer version with all the footnotes, which is just amazing. And he ends up like hiding in his room and winning a picture bong tournament and <laughs> hiding from all the people but it's so fucking funny yeah yeah it's i put it up there with hunter s thompson's kentucky derby story as two of the best wow. kind of of those really yeah. i don't think i've ever read that story but the that story is legendary oh you gotta read that because that was like one. the beginning of gonzo journalism right? beginning and he shows up at the kentucky derby with no press passes and just bullshits his way and gets, yeah but yeah, there was no Wi-Fi. There was no internet. You could do that. Yeah. They would have to just trust you. And then he he was like way like the deadline came and he ha- he wasn't done and no. he basically like sent in his raw yeah. notes and yeah. shit and they're like oh this is a new style of journalism. <laughs> like, yeah. It's legendary and yeah. and it, it you know it makes you realize that fact and fiction probably were blended in a lot sure. of stuff. But yeah. but I mean who cares? Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting character. I. I want to like him more than I do hmm. as a as a writer, and even his as work a, itself. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to love his ESPN gambling columns and stuff like that that he was doing towards the end. I don't think end. I read those. Yeah, towards the end, he was an ESPN guy, like doing uh, just out of uh, you know his Colorado compound. I think it's you know there's a danger when you become well known of of becoming a caricature of yourself yeah i feel like sure you know that happened with him much to his detriment yeah know? he but at first he was like a taibi on fucking psychedelics yeah you know yeah he was going after nixon really hardcore yeah and he was calling out bullshit um i didn't read his hell's angels book which kind of put him on the map i think before fear and loathing yeah um but yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, it's a different. It was a different time. It's very. It's fun to. I, I still. He's still kind of a benchmark for me. Just. Uh-huh. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, for me, so I, I when I started to do the the guidebooks, that kind of enabled me to make a living. So for so long, I was I, was, I never worked as a staff writer anywhere. So you know, the idea of keeping was able to to travel with this. Right. Um, that was the goal is just to get the next trip and get my schedule sorted out and get the next trip for so long. So was it the travel or the journalism that was your sort of main focus? I think it was the travel and the creativity of being able to write for a living. Right. That was, it was more, more that it was huh. more the title and, and the travel huh. than, um, some specific, you know, need to investigate big stories. I was more interested early on in culture 
So I would like one early story is I spent time with the Mokan people in Thailand, in North Thailand. They're the ones that knew the tsunami was coming. And saw it happening. Are they the, and, the and boat did, people? Yeah, the boat people. Oh, the, the sea gypsies. Sea gypsies, and, and that right, used, that, right. That kind of are countryless, nationless. Right. And have had nation, national boundaries imposed upon them. Right. And now they're kind of hunkered down. And they have no passports. No passports. They're yeah. not, I mean, they're, you know, yeah. they have their own They culture. live on their boat. They live so. on a national park. You know, now they're kind of landbound because there's, they're, the initial, international boundaries are unforgiving for them. So they can't go to their, their they would go cruise for six months a year, but they would also dock on these islands that now belong to Myanmar. And, and so you can't, they can't do that. So they're kind of moored on this, in this national park, um, called the Seren islands in North Thailand. And so, uh, I spent time there when they were still semi nomadic. So how did you do that? that? How did I you just fucking showed up dude? I just went in there up? the day, the day that national park opened for the season. And, uh, the national park tries to get do to get you everywhere but their village. Right. And so I went to their village and just found a guy and said, "Hey, man, can we can we hang out?" And and I did for uh, a week or so. He spoke English. No, I hired um I hired a fixer. Oh, um, nice. And the fixer ended up being trans. Interesting. Yeah. And so that was pretty interesting. We were so you didn't know at the time. No, I, I was told by some local ex, ex, expat. Uh, Development worker saying, I've got a great person you'll love, Tui. She's great. She knows how to do this kind of work. And I show up and she was a trans woman, which was funny. I just thought it was funny. No one ever mentioned it. Right. And so, like, right away, the first thing we were doing, I was, talk- I was researching kind of post-tsunami stuff. And so the first thing we did was get on the moped of this guy. Because, you know, this coast of Thailand can be Islamic all the way from mostly more in the south. But in north, all, all the coasts in Southeast Asia have that influence. And so our, our uh, moped driver that was driving us around at that point, because I didn't rent one that trip, um, was this guy in a skull cap. And then there was Tui the trans woman fixer. And then there was me, the Jew behind them all. <laughs> and the it was same fucking moment. great. And That's I just wish I had enough words to include that in the story. Cause yeah. it was such a great scene. Yeah. But you know, I, I'm, I was not, I was not gonzo. I was not given the gonzo yeah. green light. Who so were you that, writing that for? That was for islands magazine. Have you thought about like, I don't know how the copyright works, but could you do your own version of uh, the same thing? Yeah, I could. I could. I mean, I could, you know, now it's, that was some years ago. That was 2005. So I'd have to, you know, I could do it if I ever did like an anthology of my favorite stories. I could kind of add that kind of color and that'd be kind of fun. Um, and maybe I would do that in a a few years. Um, but you know, so for a long time, the travel was the the best part of it. And and lonely planet. I mean, even last year I was in, uh, I covered North, Argentina from the Bolivian border down into the wine country and I covered Mongolia and the Gobi Desert literally getting lost in the Gobi Desert with these no nomadic, nomadic people wow. and um, and so I still can do that and the travel is great but now for me ever since 2013 I think my focus is I, I'd rather tell stories right. and so that that has included um, becoming more interested in telling stories that are more kind of ex- narrative uh, nonfiction journalism, real journalism. And so I've done a lot of that too. All, all along I was, I was pursuing those stories, but they weren't like my primary bent. And now my primary bent is storytelling. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and how that, old are you? I'm 46. Right. Yeah. Oh, you, I would have guessed you were considerably younger, mm. but the reason I ask is like, like for me, definitely like the thrill of travel, uh, I mean, when I was young, it was just like as many stamps as I could get in my passport, yeah. as many adventures yeah. as I could rack up. Yeah. And then I got, as I got older, it's like, yeah, I need something more substantial. Yeah. I mean, 
not that there was anything. I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad I had those experiences. But after a while, it's kind of like another one of those isn't going to really help me grow. Totally. You know? I've, I've been to 50 something countries, six continents, and I still love travel. But for nine years, I was nine months a year on the road. Yeah. And that fucked up my sleep. I'm, I'm still an insomniac because of that. Really? And it's not bad. I don't regret any of it. I loved it. I loved it at the time. But when you feel like you belong everywhere, which you, you, when you're a real traveler, you get to this point where I can, you can really drop me off. When I first started to do these trips, even before I was doing it professionally, I would have like these crazy checklists and I'm not even a super organized guy, but I'd have these crazy checklists and I'd check it, make sure I had every little thing that could go wrong. I'd add extra batteries, I had all this shit. Yeah. And by the end, like now I don't even bother to bring anything. Like right. I could literally get on a plane to any place in the country and feel I can buy whatever I need there. Any place in I just, the world. I feel so, yeah. so comfortable everywhere. Yeah. But when you feel comfortable everywhere, you can sometimes feel like you belong nowhere. Yeah. That's why I wasn't surprised. I mean, I was saddened, but I wasn't surprised when Anthony Bourdain uh, committed suicide. I think the one thing people missed, they were like, oh, was he on drugs? Oh, was he, was he, is it mental health? Was he, maybe it was mental health. So yeah, of course. But I think it's this idea of he belonged everywhere, but where he lived. And so I'd come home from these long trips. And I'd feel like fucking Martin Sheen in the beginning of Apocalypse Now in the hotel room, like drinking the beer and screaming in the, <laughs> in the mirror. I'd literally just get home and get high all the time and like bang on the drums and not want to do anything. And it was like, and which was also can be fun, but it's like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really healthy. And so the two things that happened for me was, um, I got divorced. I was only married for a short time. I got divorced and, um, and so that was one big piece. And the other element is I, at that same time I had a back injury and I started open water swimming to kind of just get my, my health balanced and then becoming addicted to open water swimming and, and free diving and ocean play, uh, and that adventure element has kept me much more grounded. Mm. So now there's, now I want to do that more than I want to travel. Right. And so those kinds of things have helped and conspired to kind of shift my focus a bit. Right. Yeah. When you're talking about the, the difficulty of, of belonging everywhere and nowhere, I was think I was going to ask you about personal relationships. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, to me, that was a thing like most of my travel was before the internet. So you know, I was I was talking to a dude, um, Justin Alexander, who you may have actually heard of his case. He disappeared in the Himalayas. There okay. Was a, um, American dude. He, he's been on this podcast, I don't know, four times probably. And um, he was probably killed by a sadhu that he was living with up there. And oh, really? Never, never found his body. Yeah. Well, that's what they thought. Or no, he was. Yeah. Well, uh, no, they never found the body. This sadhu, they arrested him. And then the sadhu supposedly hanged himself in his jail cell. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's one of these, like, you know, destroy the evidence. I think the Russian... Like a Jack Ruby type scenario. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I He was in this, the Kulu Valley in the Himalayas. Is that like the um, Pakistan-Indian disputed? No, it's not in Kashmir, but it's, um, I think... Oh, is it Manali, I think, is the main village there. And um, it, it was harvest time, and it's where, like, most of the hashish ah. is grown. And I think he, you know, got on the wrong side of some... Apparently, there's a lot of Russian mafia up there. And, it's like the 
American motorcycle rider that cruised through Mitchell O'Connor on his motorcycle and didn't come out of the mountains. Really? Yeah, ended up in the wrong place. You know, yeah, Mitchell O'Connor is not where you want to be cruising. I I, yeah. I, I did a job in <laughs> 2013 in Mexico, and my I was doing the Central Pacific Coast for Lonely Planet and covered 100 kilometers that wasn't Mexico. Really? Yeah, There's all of a sudden, the police and the military are kind of camped out in these hotels, really are more like motels in these towns on either end, and they do incursions, operations every other night. Uh, but, the, you know, the guys with the walkie-talkies at the checkpoints are, are homies like us, dressed like me, T-shirt and jeans, you know, kind of hipster guys. And they work for the, for the cartel. And, and there's, they own a port. The cartel owns a port. The cartel has this surf spot. Everyone still goes. So it was no problem for me. I had no static because they don't want tourists to get fucked with. Right. It's, it's not that he was a tourist. It probably he was in the wrong place. Right. He and saw was mistaken. He yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, uh, yeah, but th- there's a whole part of Michoacan that it's not. I mean, it is Mexico culturally, but it's not Mexico legally yeah <laughs> some other country yeah Cartel country i love mexico oh, me too i man. spent a lot of time there but yeah i wouldn't go to michoacan now no you can though i mean i did yeah yeah it's beautiful yeah, yeah morelia is a great city and you know that the, the, um and i i did that whole coastline kind of stupid i didn't even it's not stupidly it wasn't i was completely safe mm-hmm. but it was a trip yeah yeah it was a trip and the cops there's no cops you go to like the local there's local uh, local foot soldiers that are in charge of different towns. And if something happens, there's theft, you go to them and they sort it out and they do sort it out. There was a story at this beach, this surf, uh, kind of camp area where I think it was Barra de Navidad and, um, some like girls had invited some, uh, local guys back to their room to smoke weed and to like hang out. And then, uh, they went back to the bar and when they came back later, their iPad was missing or something like that. And they were all freaked out. And uh, this guy was called in, and he had to go find who did it. And it wasn't hard, and they got the iPad back, and, and you know, the guy's body was found. No, he was. He survived. The they were just messed with a bit. They yeah. were just roughed up. But yeah. they, you know, it's just the way it is. It's like Wild West. Yeah, I have a buddy who, uh, an American guy who was, he owned a house in uh, a ranch actually in uh, Guatemala near Tikal, a little mm. south of yes. Tikal, the yes. pine, yes. Uh, high altitude pine, ponderosa pine. Um, I forget what it was called. Anyway, I met him because I got malaria. I not malaria. I got um, uh, dengue. No, hepatitis. Mm. Um, when I was at Tikal, and I ended up re, you know, spending a month at his place recovering, and got to know him pretty well. Um, and then a few years later, I heard that he had been killed, and there was this. It was actually a big story in the New York Times. There was a congressional investigation because. He had been killed by a military unit that was funded by the U.S. Mm. And this colonel who had like gone to the School of the Americas and like all this, you mm. know. And so it became this thing. And this is like uh, must have been early 90s, maybe late 80s, something like that. And um, Michael Devine was his name. Anyway, I couldn't figure out what had happened to him i wrote to the congressman i wrote to the new york times i was trying to figure like what happened to this dude because he was so cool such a relaxed dude and uh and you know and he was in guatemala and he was he and his wife also american and they'd adopted some guatemalan kids and they'd set up this guest house for travelers and they were just like super cool people like i remember were they both killed no no um but i remember the place was so cool because 
you know, there were maybe 15, 20 travelers who were hanging out there. And the deal was there's a book. And when you showed up, you'd get a page in the book, you know, and you just add them, right? And then every time you had a beer, you just note how many yeah, beers right. you had. And then yeah. when you're done, Classic like, add it up. shit. Yeah, and yeah. it's like trust and, yeah. you know. And uh, anyway, so that's the kind of dude he was. So I was really confused by it. And then, like, three years later, I'm at a party in San Francisco and we're talking about Guatemala, and I mentioned this guy, Michael Devine, who was killed, and I don't know what happened, and it's always bothered me. And someone who was, like, behind me says, hey, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I heard you talking, and uh, actually, I was in Guatemala when that happened. I, I can tell you what happened. I, I knew him. And, and the story was that they had opened a little Mexican restaurant along the, the highway, and one night there were some girls in there, travelers and these Guatemalan soldiers came in they're drunk and they started harassing these girls and they'd left their guns leaning against the wall and he took their guns and put them in the walk-in freezer and locked it and then kicked the soldiers out and like took the girls so because they were going to get raped and and or possibly murdered and then the next day he took the guns to the the army base and explained what happened and you know like hey I don't want any trouble I just you know, this was going to be a real problem. And next day, they, his head was like on a spike in front of the house. Jesus Fucking Christ. Horrible. Yeah, really horrible shit. Holy shit. I don't shit. know why I'm telling you that story. Something about the girls and the, yeah. you know, but and, and that sort of like ruthless kind of Central American wow. thing. The cartels are civilized compared to compared the to that. military. Fuck yeah. Anybody <laughs> is. I mean, those guys are the nastiest. Right. Yeah. Crazy. So, yeah, San Cristobal, you've been down there in Chiapas? I have. I love that town. I have. That's one of my favorites. Um, can you take a piss? Of course you can take a piss. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take a piss break. We're going to take a piss break. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, Adam just went and pissed in my yard. I pissed on the hay. On the hay, did you? Oh, yeah. that, that's Kyle Tierman's hay. Oh, sorry, Kyle. Yeah, yeah I don't think he's going to eat it. It wasn't, uh, he, he bought it. Uh, five six months ago he came here he had, he had his bow and he was showing me how to shoot and so he went and bought a hay bale for us for a target yeah yeah and now i've got a, a how about that target. kyle Tierman? piece of shit <laughs> he's so hate that he's, he's a great kid he's amazing he's so sharp his mind is so sharp i really like talking to kyle yeah he's sharp he's you know a professional athlete you just don't meet too many people who who have what he's got going on and like you said you're just waiting for the bad news about kyle like he was yeah. manufactured in a factory somewhere or something the thing i hate about kyle is he he gives me hope for the future and, yeah and i've spent so much energy like inuring myself to hoping for the future oh well let's just keep talking about the, the stories that i've written recently <laughs> I'll, I'll erase all hope for you good, good. <laughs> Counting on that. Uh, you wrote that. I, I read your story about the uh, Thai cave rescue. Oh, yeah. Well, now that's a hopeful story. That is a hopeful story. Yeah. And I was wondering, though, do you have any insight on why Elon Musk is calling that guy a pedophile? I have zero insight into the brain of Elon Musk. I've done a couple stories that have tangentially referenced Elon Musk. One more directly. I did a story on a Hyperloop contest. Oh, okay. Um, and these, uh, but it was more ended up being around 
the garment engineers that were killed. So it was kind of like, I, do you remember that story when those no. two garment, it was right after the election and these two Indian engineers who went to grad school here and got hired by Garmin in Kansas. Um, you know, they were, they're kind of suburban Kansas city, but it's in Kansas yeah. and they just went for drinks. Like they'd done a hundred times to the local uh, bar that they went to. Um, and, uh, it was TGI Fridays and some fucking drunk asshole rolls up and says, you know, get out of my country and shoots him. One died, one survived. And then he ends up getting picked up at another bar. Like I think it was an Applebee's. It was a while since I reported it, but, um, and he told the bartender there that he'd killed two Middle Eastern guys. And of course, neither of them was Middle Eastern right. because that's the thing about these people. They're fucking morons. Yeah. And, um, and he ends up getting picked up and, and, you know, Adam Purrington is his name. So after that story happened, um, not too long after that, I went to SpaceX, uh, to this Hyperloop contest that I'd been told about. And while I was there, what struck me is how so many of these engineers, uh, were actually international students that were doing these contests mm. and how some of them were in the middle of the heartland. And this election had just happened. There was the first, the first Muslim ban had just happened. There was, you know, at LAX, there were all these protests going on. Right, I remember and, that. Um, and here was Garcetti and Elon Musk doing their visit and visiting with all these people. And I met this group of guys from University of Cincinnati. And I thought, how is it life for them? These yeah. guys that were one of the leading teams at, at yeah. Hyperloop. What, what, what's life like for them? So I went and kind of reported out the, the story in suburban Kansas. And I went and hung out with the Hyperloop team in Cincinnati. And so that's what that story was about. So that right. was legitimately Elon Musk-esque. Although I couldn't get to Elon. Yeah. You know, Elon's tough to get to. And, um, and then this Ty Cave story, you know, he came up with this submarine. And... Uh, and the idea was that you could put a kid in it and they'd be sealed. There'd be no water. There'd be oxygen. They'd, they'd be fine. You could take them through the water because the idea was that there was these chambers. Some of them mm. were, um, com- were, were, were high enough where there was airspace, but some of them were siphons completely flooded out. And, uh, you know, you'd have to dive through them. And, uh, he created this thing in a couple of days with his SpaceX engineers, put money into it, put love into it literally flew out there delivered it to the people at the cave but the navy seals who were running that operation couldn't use it by then mostly because the containment dam system was working they were pumping water out and there just wasn't they didn't need it anymore it wasn't that it wasn't completely it was like a stupid thing to do Mm. it it was it was something that was wasn't needed anymore right there could have been a scenario where it was needed so it could have passed through the chambers and the tunnels according to according to i mean it's heavier than what they ended up using um according to uh the tech divers that were the focus of my story they didn't find it to be uh they didn't think it was a silly thing Hmm. They thought it was there could have like if there was another rainstorm that had come in and the containment dams went out and all of a sudden those same siphons were filled up with muddy water again, um, that might have been useful. Hmm. But in this case, most of the time, most of the kids are being carried more than they were being submerged. There were places where they're being submerged, but most of the time they were being carried. And so it just wasn't useful at that time. But this English caver, who's more of a dry caver, he's not a, he's not a cave diver. He's made his name as a dry caver, and he lives in Chiang Rai. Uh, I think he poked fun at Elon Musk, and Elon yeah. uh, went nuts, he and now he's getting sued for calling a guy a pedophile. And yeah. I have zero insight into that English caver's like personal life. 
I will say yeah. that in in Thailand there are some skeezy guys that show up there and move there to yeah. be skeezy. Yeah. I'm not, I have no idea if that's that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember uh, meeting some inter- up around yeah. Chiang Rai. I think meeting like some sort of communities of uh, Vietnam vets yeah. who like live there mm. and hung out and um, were in Pattaya. Well, no, I mean, I did, I did make the mistake of going to Pattaya <laughs> once. Man, I was there. The like, Navy SEALs have a base there. Oh, really? Yes, the U.S. Navy SEALs. Jesus, I know. What a weird place for a base. Yeah. No, I, I went. I don't know why I went there. Um, I was in Bangkok and wanted to go to a beach, and I don't know, someone recommended it, whatever, and I went there, and it was just like, ah, this is horrible. This is so fucking like sleazy, and yeah. I've never even been to uh, Phuket. Yeah, so Patong and Phuket is basically the Pattaya of Phuket. Yeah. yeah, they're the bar girls, and that's what it is. It's like a bunch of bar girl scene, and, yeah. and it's really sleazy and gross. And there's yeah. sex shows, and there's um, brothels and that kind of thing. And Pattaya yeah. is that same has a lot of that too. Right. So, but there's Phuket's a big island. And there's lots of about Phuket that's really cool. Yeah, that's I've heard there's some be. beautiful yeah, spots. Yeah, yeah. I just never got there. I was, uh, I was on um, in Krabi, and mm-hmm. this was like uh, this must have been late '80s. It was totally undeveloped, mm. and there wasn't even electricity. There were like gas Amazing. lamps and stuff. See, this is you got to be jealous of Christopher Ryan, PhD, because he got to see a lot of this shit before, before, before it kind of started to get developed and then homogenized. Yeah, you know, like how everything is has to be. You can get almost anything you want everywhere now. Um, well, it's tra- yeah. yeah. I mean, when you started traveling, was the internet? already up and running not yet no yeah. no so you saw that difference yeah i mean yeah. it's a people can't imagine how yeah. how i mean the first major trip i took i uh uh i flew i had a one-way ticket from new york to new delhi and this would have been like 80 i'd already been to mexico i'd like been to san cristobal mm-hmm. in like 83 84 yeah um but like the first trip to asia i flew to india um, must have been 87, maybe. Uh, one-way ticket. I was just going to travel till I didn't have any more money. And um, I went up to Kashmir. And I remember uh, I had a shortwave radio, this little pocket shortwave radio. Yeah. And I remember like lying in, on this houseboat in Srinagar. And I turned on the radio and... <laughs> BBC World Service, like oh, it's in English, right? Yeah. And like ah, oh, that's cool. Even though it's BBC, right? And I've never been to England, and I'm listening to cricket scores and stuff, and it's like oh, okay, <laughs> you know, it's it's like a connection to yes. the world, yes. you know, yes. and it was so tenuous and felt so so distant and yes. like, but if there's a nuclear war, uh, you know, Chernobyl happened, yes. so the, whatever year that was, find out. I was in India. And uh, yeah, it took like three days before I heard about yeah. it, you know, Is and now like your mom's texting you wherever yeah. the fuck you are, yeah. you know, when you're in a Pattaya brothel. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, I told you not to call Mom, me here. I, I told you 30 minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with different. you. No, it's different. And. This now we're even post internet cafe. So then the internet happened, and there were right. there was this entire internet cafe. cafe economy that yeah. com- and these people invested in all these <laughs> terminals, yeah. and now that's completely out the window. Yeah, you just yeah. you got your phone. Totally. Yeah, it's it's a different world, and yeah. you know I know I sound like an old person, but I mean back in my day. But I mean back, you know I I often think like well when you wanted to go to India you would take a boat and it yeah. would take two months. 
You know, that's a different kind yeah. of world, too. You know, imagine that. Cruise food. <laughs> <laughs> you get scurvy. Hey, scurvy. How would you like scurvy today, sir? <laughs> what would you like with your scurvy? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I mean, as a travel writer and as a traveler, like part of the story is just how travel's changed. Yeah. You know? And that's true. I mean, I did a story. I went to... Lagos, Nigeria for Playboy oh, in 2015. Jesus, that's a sentence. Yeah. Say that again. I went to Lagos, Nigeria for Playboy in 2015. <laughs> and let's say all hail Playboy because Playboy allows you to re- get reimbursed for cocktails. Whereas like there's a lot of and magazines well these days. Yeah. For the article. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of magazines these days, like if you, t- I remember I was in, I was in North Carolina for a Sierra magazine story and it was a good story. It's all about um, how industrial meat production is basically oh, destroying. Oh, I saw that. It, and it's it, happening again now? The fucking oh, yeah. it, the hurricane It's going to happen in, every time there's a hurricane. Shit. All that pig shit goes in. It destroys reefs. It destroys fisheries. It's really bad. I think it's And it's actually, subsidized, so be happy. Exactly. It's yeah. subsidized. And, and I think it's like, you know, I was looking at your article. That was about yeah. a hurricane three years ago yeah. or something. Yeah. Now there's one like yesterday. Yeah. And I'm thinking those fucking hog farmers... They're counting on hurricanes to come in and clean out those. Well, right. I mean, you can't. It's tough to blame the subcontractor because in this, in that scenario, and I'll tie it back into Lagos, Nigeria. Oh yeah, I forgot that, about Lagos. In that yeah. scenario, um, what you have is you have a multinational company, uh, which is Chinese owned, by the way, that outsources their pig production in North Carolina because of the way the North Carolina politicians have set up the environmental laws that allow for this thing to happen. And what ends up happening is the pig farmer is a middleman. He's like a, basically a sharecropper who takes the pig, is paid, paid rent to raise the pig, does not own the pig, and has to pay for their own disposal of the waste. And so these hog, fa- the hog, the, 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 the lagoons, the waste lagoons, and then spraying them on fallow fields, that's the cheapest way to handle that waste because they're not paid to process the waste. And so these big multinational companies that are huge publicly traded companies uh, don't have to pay for their own waste. It's, it's, and, and so what happens is these, these smaller kind of, I'm calling them glorified sharecroppers, they're, they're middlemen. Yeah. These smaller farmers, independent farmers, are in a really tough position. They're not actually making a lot of money. They're beholden to this corporate interest. And then they are embittered by environmentalists and reporters coming around telling them what they can and can't do. So they're caught in the middle. Their their fury should be at a system that won't allow them to be compensated to do this thing properly. But it's all skewed and contorted and the facts aren't – they're not – ready to listen. You know, it's a big problem we have in this country and in the world is nobody wants to hear things that are tough to hear. Yeah. And, and instead they want to whine and they want to talk about freedom and they don't want to talk about what is, what they need to do differently. Mm. And it's unfortunate because if we can all just listen to things that are tough to hear about ourselves and about the world, we could actually start to fix some of these fucking problems. So bringing that all around, so I'm in Lagos, so I'm in Lagos. No, so Sierra. So I'm, I'm in. I'm in North Carolina reporting that story, oh, and yeah. I take out a, a guy for drinks who I know. He used to be the head of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, and I have meet meet him for drinks in Chapel Hill, and I try to reimburse my get reimbursed for drinks, and they wouldn't pay for this guy's drink. 
You're a fucking journalist. How are you supposed to get Isn't that people funny? to talk? Right. So yeah. I paid for the drinks. But that's okay. It's Sierra Magazine. Yeah. I like Sierra Magazine. Yeah. But Playboy, they understand you have to take people to drinks sometimes. Yeah. And this story was really all about the club scene uh, in Lagos. It was, yeah. it was one of those funny stories where you could tell magazine editors were locked in a room trying to come up with something like, you know, let's go to the most dangerous party city in the world. And so, and they they decided that they they Googled around. They decided Lagos, Nigeria, was the most dangerous place to party in the world, mm. which is kind of like stereotypical and not really sensitive and not even necessarily true. <laughs> and so they they tell me, Adam, would you like to go to Lagos? And I said, What's the hook? Most dangerous party city in the world. And I thought that doesn't sound like that's legit. But I ended up doing a story on kind of Afro pop and the mm. club scene in Lagos. And it, I mean, listen, it isn't safe all the time. There is issue, there are issues in Lagos, but it was a, it's more of a sprawling story about Afro pop and the club scene, and which is and, pretty happening. Oh yeah, dude, it's yeah. it's the megaphone for all of Africa. Yeah, like it's it's the music, it's the movie scene, everything. And it's and it was it's really just more of a, a story about Lagos. I ended up hanging out with. Um, uh, yeah, Fela's kids, right? And, and hanging Kuti, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was good. It was a great. It was a great experience. It, it was, uh, and and I really loved Lagos. Huh. It's, it's not a place you'd want. I'd want to live personally. Right. It's tough. Yeah. But um, but I really enjoyed myself in Lagos, and and yeah. um, I think it comes across. So there was that story. That's a few years old. And who who'd you do that for? That was Playboy. Oh, Playboy. Yeah. Right. Right. Cool. Uh, I might have read that story. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I was I was profiled by this journalist for playboy they flew him out to portland he spent like two days with me you know like shadowing me and all that and then they never published it it happens yeah like they killed the story i, I did know. a story for I, did, I was one of the first international journalists on the scene of berta caceres's murder assassination oh. in honduras for playboy and they never found a way to publish i got paid in full they didn't really fully kill it but they never ran it really and and i was i i talked to the witnesses i talked to, i mean i talked to people Honduras is a dangerous place. Oh yeah, place. that was that was a crazy place to be. Yeah. yeah. So how have you had I mean I don't know if, if this is a silly question like uh have you felt that your life was in danger uh when you were reporting stories? Two things come to mind. Uh on that trip to Honduras, basically her assassination was traced to this one hydroelectric dam project where they were trying to put in a hydroelectric dam. And when I say they, there was a development bank that is, uh, the, the, the leadership of which ownership of which are traced to very powerful people in Honduras. And it was also, you know, development banks are these kinds of their bank structures that take money, international money from different governments and also private money. And they use that to for purposes of supposedly development which can be hydroelectric it could be uh, it could be fracking it could be uh roads yeah and some of that's necessary look honduras is really underdeveloped but this particular case probably was more just a money scheme and they were going to go into this one river which is doesn't even flow that fast year round and put in this hydroelectric project they think it's going to help everybody with with electricity but they don't really it's a top-down thing they never talk to the indigenous people that live there right and berta caceres is a, an indigenous rights activist um who's you know, legendary won the Goldman prize, which is a, 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 like the Nobel prize for activism. And, um, so she was working on stopping that project 
and that was her kind of, that's what she was focused on at the time and that's and that when she was murdered and so i went to that site and i talked to the people she was working with and when we went down to that river they took me down to the river uh maybe 100 people from the community and me and there was uh, and my fixer was there with me and then <clears throat> The, the security guys for this dam project, because the construction was still there, you know, all that stuff was still ongoing. Um, they came down and kids are in the river and they start pointing the weapons at the kids in the river swimming. And the parents are watching this and they're pointing their, their rifles at these children. And so I get in the river too. And then one of them points its rifle right at me. And I, like, I'm staring at the guy and I'm like, I mean, it, you could die right then. Nothing yeah. would happen to that guy. Right. And that would be it. That would be it. So that, that would be one. Uh, another time I was, Wait, what, what happened? He took his gun off me and then, and then some, some teenagers came and like started a brush fire on their side of the river when they weren't looking and, and that smoke started to push them back and they couldn't stand there anymore. And they went up top and they flew drones over us and the guy probably was never going to shoot. But the thing is, you just never know. Yeah. Like it could happen. Yeah. Like if that guy's having a bad day, right. he could have. He could have shot me right. and nothing would have happened to him. Right. There was nobody there. I mean, there, nobody was going to believe these indigenous rights activists unless it's on film. Yeah. It's hard, I think, for people who've never left the United States or, or Europe to understand how cheap life is in some places, Super cheap. including yours. I mean, you know, let's face it. You got some advantage. You're white. You're foreign. They, they might think eh, no. this, this might get some attention, but minor. No. Yeah. It's cheap. Journalists die all the time. That's yeah. how they die. Right. So then later that night, I was my fixer was a stoner, and we're, get, we're getting high. Like at the in living, we were staying in this little sh- shack for one of the families there, and uh, and we were outside in the yard, and all of a sudden we hear this like commotion and people like charging towards where we are, but really they're just. And I, I never was that worried about it, but he was freaked out because you know he's Honduran and Honduran journalists do die. A lot. A lot, yeah. And so um, he he's like, we got to go, we got to go. And then we, we run in and we hear the noise and it passes us by. And then we, he's like, okay, it's okay, we can go back out. And then it happened a second time. And finally I'm like, dude, that's just like the town drunk. I'm, I'm not good going back inside. <laughs> Let's just enjoy the night. But, I mean, you do think about it, you yeah. know. And I've always said to myself, you know, it was only a good idea if you get home alive. And I did feel vulnerable in that moment with the gun. But then the, the probably the most dangerous, that was that was – probably at least equal to that was I was doing an, I was doing a lonely planet job in Indonesia in 2012. And and I was in Lombok, Southwest Lombok to going to a surf, a surf spot called desert point. And the guy who I knew, I had a friend in Sangigi and his brother drove us. And so the two Indonesian guys and me, and we're cruising down and, and his brother takes a wrong turn. And we end up at the top of this hill and instead of Desert Point, we're around the point on the other side, and we see this virgin beach that nobody, it's not in anybody's books, it's not mapped, it's nothing. And we drive down to the beach, and, um, and there's cops there. We saw a police checkpoint. I'm like, why are there police here? Like, what's going on? And the cops are just on, like, on the beach taking selfies. You know, it's all, all fine. It's beautiful. It's like this. It's, there's a lot of winds. So it would be like the perfect kite beach mm. and i have a friend who's a kite surf photographer based in bali and he's always told me you know if you find any spots out in southeast indo let me know and so i'm texting him as we're driving out and all of a sudden the road is blocked by the local villagers and they and they're they're carrying machetes and they're carrying um you know they're all pissed off they're more not machetes but they're sapits they're like the, the, st- the sticks they're kind of the like knife. sickles oh right right you know so they're carrying sickles and they're carrying uh um, 
you know, whatever they have as weapons, spears, because in Lombok, they have spears because it's part of the ceremonial dance tradition as well and, mm-hmm. and weapons that they've always had. And so we, I've seen people walk down the beach, I mean, walk down roads straight from the rice fields looking all dusty, but they're headed off to practice their ceremonial stuff. In this case, they were coming towards us and they fanned out and blocked the road. And um, we rolled down the window and the, the driver's like, you know, what's going on? And they're screaming at him, Dimana bang bang, Dimana bang bang, meaning where's bang bang, where's bang bang? And we're like, what? What are you talking about? And, and they're like, where's Bang Bang? We'll kill you right now. We know he's in that car. Where is he? We're going to kill you right now. And the thing is, they can. Like, you know, it does happen where people end up getting, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, lynched on the back roads. Sure. Usually after car accidents or something yeah, else. Someone right. gets run over. Something happens. And, and, and the police are watching this whole thing. And the police are just stroll right by us. They're not intervening. There's, a, there's like 50 of these villagers, Spears and Sapits, and they're not going to intervene. And so the story was, back in, uh, in the 80s and early 90s, mainly in the 80s, uh, there's a General Suharto that ran Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And there's the, like the, the families that were kind of connected to him. And those people fanned out all over Indonesia, and they'd find these hidden gems and they would do land deals with the people who were largely weren't really even reading the language well and they'd say we're going to give you x amount of money now and you're going to sign this the rights to your to your land to us uh, but we're not going to do anything with your land yet we'll come back we're not ready but we'll come back one day and then we'll take possession of the land and you'll move and we'll build a hotel or we'll build what we build and that's what's going to happen. And that happened all over Indonesia. And this beach is one place that happened. And so right before we were there, basically, they came back and they said, they said, okay, we're ready. It's time for you to move. And now it was a new generation in charge of the village. And the village is like, uh, the, the, the younger generation said, hey, that was our parents that got paid. We don't have the money to go anywhere. Where are we going to go? You have to pay us. So Bong Bong was a villager who basically negotiated for them. And there's like 150 people that live in that village, and they got another 70 grand for this virgin beach to go everywhere. And then Bong Bong took off with all 70 grand. And they thought me, the white guy there, was like in cahoots with the developers. They thought I was a developer. And they were, they were pissed. And so they're like, finally, like they, they, the, you know, the windows are rolled down. They're, my, my, I'm in the back seat. My backpack that has my computer, my passport, my wallet, all my credit cards, everything's right here. And these guys are staring at it, and they're staring at me with like blood in their eyes. And uh, and I'm thinking to myself, if they grab that bag, I'm not letting that bag go. This guy's gonna have to like put his fucking foot on the gas. Um, but luckily, it didn't come to that. They finally they saw the Indonesia Lonely Planet, and they're like, and they're like, oh, Sajaturis, just a tourist, he's just wow. a tourist. I'm like, yeah, sorry. And, and they let us go, and they're like, don't come back. We're like, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a close one. That mob, mob yeah. thing. You can't, Mob's you, bad. You can't talk to a mob. Mob is bad. Yeah. yeah. My buddy, I get, I, I get home, my buddy said, man, you should have died that way. You would have been famous. <laughs> I would have been, been all over the world in like a t- for, for a day. I would have been famous. Yeah. <laughs> Lonely Planet journalist. Not even 15 minutes. <laughs> Speared to death in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been robbed uh, repeatedly? Not, no. I, I've, I've, I have been, I've had, I've been robbed when I wasn't looking. So I had someone grab a bag that had my camera and a credit card in it, um, and then I've, I had someone kind of get into my motorbike seat when I was uh, in the ocean mm. and grab something, uh, just my credit cards. 
So it's only been. That's not bad. Yeah, I know. I haven't had um, any. No, no one came up and robbed me. Like no arm Muggy. robbery. Yeah, no, that's no, great. No, that's no. fantastic. Do you do you have a money belt you wear under your no, pants no, no, or anything? No, no, no. no. no you don't do that. No, no, because you don't need to carry cash anymore. That's true. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, think about that. That's another yeah. big change. Yeah, so that's a big change. When I went to India that first time in the mid '80s, I had like fifteen thousand dollars cash in a money belt, yeah. and um, I was really nervous about um, someone coming into my room in New Delhi, like the first place I stayed in Old Delhi, right near the train station. I was nervous about somebody coming in and stealing it when I was sleeping. And I had all cash because I had read that you get a better exchange on the black market with $100 bills. And so I was trying to really stretch it out, you know. And I kept it under my pillow when I slept at night. And uh, I'd, I was there like four days or something. And, and uh, I got a ticket to go to Kashmir on this train. I went to the train. I checked out. You know, got my backpack everything. Went to the train station. I'm sitting there waiting for this train and I'm sweating because it's like eight in the morning but mm. it's hot as fuck and this bead of sweat rolls down my back and I like, reach back and touch it and where's my money belt I left it in the fucking hotel under the pillow <laughs> did you get it oh dude it was insane this is like five days into my Chris is going to see Jesus. the world goodbye everyone I right. don't know when I'll see you again trip you know yeah did you find your money well, I ran back to this this cheap, you know, not pension, but I don't know, guest house, they call it. And um, yeah, I ran up. I, I've told this story on the podcast. Is there's a Roma ranting out my ass, which is just where I tell travel stories. Okay. So if anyone wants to hear the full story, they can check that out in the archives. But uh, yeah, I ran back and I ran past the reception desk. Oh, fuck, my phone's ringing, but... All right. that, that's my ringer. Do you recognize the tune? I don't. Steely Dan, Hey oh. 19. Great song. Um, and it talks about Aretha Franklin, who just died. Anyway, uh, I, run, I run back. I go, I run up to the room, bang on the door. There's someone in there. They speak Hindi. They, don't, they, won't, right. they won't open the door. And it was, oh, fuck. And I go back down to the reception, and there's a Sikh dude. And... He's like, what's going on? What was happening? I said, oh, I left something in the room and really important. He said, what did you leave? I said, some papers. And he's like, oh, what kind of papers? And I like, oh, man, like really important. Like my, pa- my passport. And like, oh, your passport. Anything else? And, and he's looking at me like, and I, and I just like have this instinctive feeling like I'm being tested. Yeah. You know? And uh my instinct when when I'm like I, I wasn't gonna try to this happened another time I, I went to prison in Alaska and it was the same kind of thing like am I gonna lie and try to get through this or throw myself on the mercy mercy or, and I did the, the, I go for the mercy every time and I was just like just look man I left all my money there and he said oh well, your money how much money like fifteen thousand dollars and like. And he reaches under and hands it to me. He knew. Oh, yeah. He, he knew. knew who you were. Yeah. And he wanted to confirm. Yeah. You know, and, and he said, do you know how much money that is here? Like, you could buy this hotel. Right? He said, the boy who cleans the room found it. He makes $12 a month or something. And uh, so you go pay him I, I didn't count the money, but the stack, you know. And I grabbed a few hundred bucks. I said, please give it to him. And, and he said, oh, no, no, no. You... 
you um, dishonor him. Like, you know, he's an honest boy. He doesn't do this for a reward. And I said, well, what can I do? He said, give me like, you know, the, the I don't know, like $20 worth of rupiah and we'll have a, a party to honor him, you know, for his honesty. And I did. And then he was like, now you be careful, man. You be careful, you know. And I thanked him and I ran back to the train station, got on the train. And, and you've never loved India more in your whole life. I bet, I bet, <laughs> I bet India is very special to you now. Yeah, and and I think about that guy because yeah. I mean honestly, it all happened so fast, and there's all this adrenaline, and um, it wasn't until maybe you know two or three hours into that train trip that I, you know, could reflect on like holy fuck, you know, that was massive what that guy did, and 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 then you know in the years since then I've reflected on how that's affected my life and my sense of self. And, you know, because then I became like in my family and among my friends, I'm sure like you, I became the guy who's been everywhere and had all these adventures and like fearless fucking world traveler, Chris, that dude, you know, he's been every, like, what if that guy had kept the money? Like, I'm not going to call the cops, right? Like he didn't rob me. No. And how can I prove who has it? And, like and also you dumbass, you left fifteen thousand dollars in cash in right. your room and checked out. Fuck right. you, you right. know. So I would have been like, what? Call my mom and ask for her to like pay for a ticket home, and I return home a week after leaving, broke and humiliated. I mean, that's a very different kind of life. Yeah, you know. I mean, hopefully it wouldn't. You well, know, you would have. I would have. I would have bounced back, but it. I worked three years saving that money. That's tough. You know? Well, good thing he was there, the angels. I mean, that shows you to... You don't have to just look at Kyle. There are kind people. In the, you know, I think people are large. <laughs> back to Kyle. Back to Kyle. Fuck that uh, guy. We, Kyle. I think, I think um, <laughs> people are largely good. You know, our human systems are largely dysfunctional. Um, that's yeah. what I think. People are like... Yeah, by, I agree with you. Buying... By and large, and and I think by some distance, are largely good and inclined to do good. And and, and it, I was talking. Do you know who Bruce Perry is? No, you ever heard of him? He had a show on BBC called Tribe. Uh, he would go and live with like really really remote okay. uh, people for four to six weeks, and he did this thing. And he's a he's a really good traveler. Mm. You know, he's like he laughs and he would like eat what they ate and participate in their rituals and they're doing it for TV, Mm. but it was him, a camera guy and a sound guy. So they were as low impact as possible. And I'm talking like way back, like with the Penan people in Borneo and like hunter gatherers, Pitaha people in the upper Amazon, um, the Maasai. And yeah, anyway, we were talking about this the other day and, and, you know, I said to him, do you think there's an inverse relation between how civilized people are and how kind they are? Mm. And he said, yes. And he said, but even civilized people are still kind yes. at heart. But they live in a system that's encouraging them not to be. So you see the conflict between human nature and culture more acutely in the the more dominant cultures. Interesting. Have you found that? I mean, would you say, like, the further out you go, the more likely people are to be generous and kind? I think you don't know by passing through a place how people are, but I think on the surface, um, people are, are tend to be more friendly and hospitable. 
I think I'll say that. Uh, you don't and, know. And they're more dependent on one another. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know I think that, um, yes. I mean, I, I think that for the most part, when you're hustling on the hustle here and trying to fucking pay the bills that we have to pay here versus places that are more um, collaborative in the economy, um, right. there's less opportunity, but there's more re- uh, reliance on community. Right. There's a certain interdependence that that creates that kindness i think that's true that fosters that kindness right and and all of that um but i do think most people want to do good and are kind most i don't think all but i think um we have limits to our empathy here because of uh where our attention has to go yeah and i think it, it relates to the capitalist system not that i'm anti um money but I'm. I, I think the system that we have it doesn't doesn't foster that humanity and kindness. So I agree with you in that sense. But I'm not sure it's it's because of civilization. Unless I think it's. I think there's ways. I think there's countries that manage it differently. You know, let's put it that way. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and f- more egalitarian, yeah. more sharing. Uh, yeah. Denmark, Sweden. You know. Yeah. A lot of play in Holland. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it's a perfect... There are no you know, fucking purple Bentleys in Denmark, I'll tell you <laughs> that's that. That's right, that's right. Um, but it's just like the most recent story that I just wrote is all about kind of the limits of empathy, all about, oh. um, you know, if you could see... To judge a society, the best way to do that is to see how we treat people that have done something wrong. That's a Dostoevsky quote, mm. you know, crime and punishment guy. Mm. And that's kind of the lead to this story, which is... Oh, the prison reform story. The prison reform story. And that story is really a profile of an activist who grew up in Thailand to American missionary. She was born, you know, she's... um, She was born uh, in the 60s and lived there. And and when she was in high school, the Cambodian killing fields stuff was happening. And she was kind of activated as uh, as, as an aid worker there, just kind of on the fly, like a high school student that went... And tended to people on the run from that, um, from the Khmer Rouge. And uh, fast forward to the 90s, and her brother uh, had been a a special forces guide from Delta Force, Army Rangers, and... um, and he had been a sem- was in the seminary and dropped out of seminary trying to figure out what to do. He loved being a soldier, um, but and he didn't really want to necessarily just have a church. And he ends up on the Burma border when the Myanmar government, uh, military government, was going in and burning out villages. So the same thing that's happening now on the border with um, Bangladesh yeah. uh, with the Rohingya people yeah. has been happening in the ethnic states around the Burma state, central state for, you know, decades, yeah. same shit, torching villagers, killing people, raping women, destroying livelihoods. And so in the nineties he went, oh, he just got a gun and one other rebel guy and they went in while everyone else was running out and they got people out of harm's way and they provided medical attention and he didn't fight with anybody. He was really all about the relief end, but on the front lines. So is he, uh, are they, this brother or sister, are they Thai or are they American? They're American. They were born in yeah. Thailand. Okay. Mother was a Broadway, uh, performer and like like did very well was in oklahoma all that and ended up in texas on a um kind of on a traveling show and the father had just gotten out of or was in graduate school and they met and fell in love and she left show business to become a missionary with him 
Wow. And they ended up moving to Bangkok, and Bangkok's still like a cow town, basically. And then, and then moving to Chiang Mai, which wow. is really like dry, riding horses through the downtown yeah. Chiang Mai, which is now what a million people live there or yeah. close to it. And anyway, so that's where the, these kids grew up. Wow. They went to international school in Bangkok and, and all of that. Anyway, um, he starts a, an organization called Free Burma Rangers and has basically been doing that and training other people who were refugees from those kinds of village raids and training them up to deliver the same kind of thing. And he, he recently made news. For a long time, he kept his name anonymous. He wouldn't let anyone write about his... He wouldn't be able to name him um, for a, lot of t- of a long time because uh, the Thai government would be embarrassed by letting him operate. And, mm. and so he was kind of worried about that. Uh, but then since the Myanmar peace process happened, he's been, it's easier for him to to be public and he made some noise when he helped get a kid out of ISIS held country in, in, in Iraq. He saved a kid and there was lots of imagery of him. I wrote about him for the free for, for outside magazine a number of years ago, 2012, 2011, I was researching that story and in, in, in contacting him in doing that story, I met his sister through, through phone interviews and she's been on the sidelines helping get the different factions within these ethnic states to come to the table together to be able to, to foster these peace agreements. So she's been really instrumental. No one ever knows about her. She doesn't earn a cent. She's not, doesn't do any of that. And uh, she's a really interesting story herself. So she, her husband is a, a Navy captain. Now he's a retired Navy captain. But when you think of an evangelical family, uh, a military family, and he is re- registered Republican, um, I always thought she was too. And so I fast forward to the end of 2016 and I'm on Facebook and I see her post something about prison reform. And I'm thinking, I always liked Lori. You know, I always thought Lori was one of those pure people that you meet. And, you know, you might meet them every once in a while. They're not the ones that are, say how spiritual they are. You feel it mm. when you're in their presence or talking mm. to them. They're just the way they approach every conversation. It, it, it's just different. And she always had that kind of. And so she's posting about prison reform, but I still thought she's like an evangelical Christian type person. And so she is. And I thought maybe she's conservative. And so, okay, that's interesting. So I decided to contact her and find out what was going on. So what happened was someone from her church um, was arrested for attempted to solicit, attempting to solicit someone to kill her husband. So solicitation to murder charge. And um, she got involved with that woman trying to help her through that, through the court process, she ends up pleading guilty and getting the maximum sentence anyway. And then Lori Dawson, who the story tends to be about, it starts off as a kind of a true crime, true crime case, and then it follows Lori through this rabbit hole and, and is more of a deep dive into our prison system. And she, uh, she ends up following uh, Karen Lofgren, who is the, who is the um, accused in the story, into the prison system in, in Washington State and sees how much is wrong with it. And the real theme of the story is here is this human rights activist who grew up in Thailand, working on human rights issues on the Cambodian border and then again on the uh, Burma border. And the whole time, growing up as an expat in, in Thailand, in her mind, the United States is this gleaming light of human rights. Mm. We have the Constitution, we value equality, and we are helping foster human rights all over the world via the UN. And we are the model. And she always thought that. 
And then she gets into this prison system and she sees that is a lie. We don't have human rights in this country. We have civil rights in this country. That means everything is pursuant to the Constitution, to the rule of law. And the Constitution itself does not declare everyone has human rights. In fact, the only reason the Constitution ever even passed was because of the three-fifths compromise, which is, you know, in in, in those days, it was a way for uh, northern and southern states to come together behind a country they were basically the southern states said hey we have all we have this bigger population we should have more representation but their bigger population a lot of them were slaves the northern uh northern side was saying they shouldn't count as people they're just slaves so it's this bizarre thing where the people who have actually have the slaves are arguing for the humanity of the people but just for their own political representation right. so they came up with this three-fifths compromise a slave is worth three-fifths of a person right and and without that compromise there's no constitution. Right. So that just shows and you... the, the Electoral l- College, too, was part of that, that slave. Was also, well, that's yeah. the thing. So, yeah. you know, because you're doing population. So that right. feeds the electrical, Electoral College numbers. R- oh, okay. At so the it's same the same time, thing. Same yeah, thing. Yeah, I see. Okay. So, and so the three-fifths compromise ends up being thing. Now, now, I'm not saying we all have to always go around apologizing for these, these sins. But they are the original sin of the United States. And it does matter because... Everything we've ever done to make things more equal, the civil rights movement, which is amazing, which we celebrate and we should, is all about dismantling these little laws. It's not because all of a sudden we decided, hey, every human being deserves human dignity. You know, because if that was true, we wouldn't have police going around shooting black people all the time, Mm. you know. And so these are the problems that we have, right? And it all comes down to human rights versus civil rights. We do not fully believe in human rights. And, and here's a good example. Um, Lori uncovers this document called the Bangkok Rules. The Bangkok Rules were put in place by uh, the UN because the princess of Thailand went to law school in Cornell and went back and realized, hey, we have a problem with women's prisons. We're not treating women right. We're not treating prisoners right. And creates the Bangkok Rules as the benchmark, human rights benchmark for the treatment of prisoners and women's prisoners all over the world. We fall short of the Bangkok rules on multiple levels, almost universally. And there's the Mandela rules on the men's side. We do not live up to the Mandela rules. There's not one prison in this country that adheres to all of the rules that are set forth by the UN that we helped ratify. So that's proof right there. And there's, there's tons more evidence. So the story is really about what do we value? And, you know, the hook is this juicy true crime story. And there is kind of this element of entrapment and it is there is some suspense there but really the the meat of it is Lori Dawson's work mm. and that just came out on Long Reads a couple of weeks ago I really love it if you guys read that one yeah that, that's a deep one that was, so how do they find it longreads.com longreads.com just if you if you search my name and longreads you'll find it and right. um, I'll send you a link if you ever post yeah I'll, that I'll put it on, yeah, on yeah. my page yeah I mean obviously a lot of people listen to this on yeah. apps and stuff yeah so yeah they don't go to my so if page. you go to long reads and Adam Skolnick or long reads prison reform yeah you'll find it you'll find it yeah cool. it's called stripped is the the name of the story all right yeah and because in the end she she ends up getting kind of working on strip search issues uh, that ends up being one of the things that she tackles one concrete thing she can do Listen, man, we've been going for a while. I need to go piss in the yard. Go um, piss in the yard. But, I might piss on the yard on my way to my car if it's okay. <laughs> Just don't but piss not on, on Kyle's, Kyle's hay. <laughs> on his hay. No, that's all you right. You know the golden child that we love so much? You hate him, but <laughs> it's okay. Child. He's coming up later. We're going <laughs> to shoot some arrows, and he's going to make me his fucking beet tacos, which he thinks everyone <laughs> loves. 
And I think no, no one can. <laughs> no one tells him we don't like our shit to turn purple. <laughs> purple shit. Yeah. Every time he comes, he brings beets and makes it. I, my beet tacos. I'm like, yeah, your beet tacos. <laughs> How come? <laughs> Be- Listen, Kyle. I haven't tried your beet tacos, but don't try to pull that beet taco shit on yeah, me. Yeah, keep your beet tacos to yourself, <laughs> motherfucker. Uh, hey, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, what a pleasure. Yeah, it's great hey. to meet you. And and uh, and congratulations for pulling it off. You, you know, like so many people are like, how do I, how do I make a living that allows me to travel and do something meaningful? Mm. Right. I mean, that's Thanks, the, those are like two things everyone's looking for. And you managed to get them both. I know you worked your ass off. It, it's, oh, dude, I'm it's still on the easy. knife's edge some months. You know, yeah. it still happens that way. But yeah. um, I've managed to be able to do it. And I appreciate that. That means a lot to me because, uh, yeah, it's not easy. I can't I can tell you that I work more than most people. I would say there's whole months. I don't I mean, you know, several months. I might not have a day off. So. I would say I work more. The whole the whole lifestyle kind of came out of this thing. I, I, I witnessed my dad's midlife crisis, and I my whole life was like, I'm not going to have a fucking midlife crisis. And then I created this thing, which I don't. I didn't have. I had a near midlife crisis in Mongolia last year, but I have kind of like the crisis is never too far off. <laughs> yeah. But you yeah. know, it's been it's meaningful to be able to do it, and um, you kind of feel like a conscientious objector to the accumulation game yeah and uh and i think that's good so try to keep it going yeah i've been i've been living a midlife crisis since like i was 20 i think (laughs) you know good i mean i sort of started off retired (laughs) started off midlife crisis (laughs) yeah i mean if a midlife crisis is when you look at your life and say what the fuck have i been doing then what the fuck am i doing yeah yeah i mean it's perpetual and that's to me that never ends i mean that's you got to check in on that no i think that's good i think midlife crisis probably means there's some collateral damage along the way (laughs) to to the big introspection right all of a sudden it starts crashing all around you well because because, what you've been doing is bullshit look at it right ahead of time exactly so i don't think you did start out with midlife crisis i think you 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 kind of came from the same point that i was coming from which is you know what fuck all this bullshit yeah like i'm not gonna kick the dogs of my mortgage right like you know what i mean right. i'm gonna like figure out a way to live differently yeah but it's not easy to live differently in a, in a right. life in a world that you know it's not easy on multiple levels i mean everything from like rudimentary bullshit like your money coming in differently than paycheck to pay you know mm. so then if you if you want to have to call your credit card company said hey dude i haven't got paid by this magazine i'm like waiting for six weeks i can't pay that bill mm. yet they don't give a fuck. Right. Because they're used to people getting paid every two weeks. So right. they're like, oh, well, when's your next check coming? We can do it for the next day. I'm like, no, it doesn't quite work that right. way. Right. And then you're like basically the deadbeat in this world. So many solutions. Dude, I had a whole eviction notice period. I mean, yeah. many, many stories, but it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. Like credit rating. Forget about it. <laughs> forget about it. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, all that financial stuff. I, like, I lived outside of the U.S. most of my life, right. so I don't even have, like, enough years of Social Security. No, to, no, like, we're fucked. You know, that's yeah. why I got that van out there. That's my retirement. <laughs> I'm going to get in the van and go live down by the river. <laughs> that's it, man. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back in the expat life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Anyway, hey, thank you, man. This thank was you, really brother. fun. Appreciate it. A, B, C, D, E, and I are back. This is the part of the podcast, one of the parts of the podcast, where a normal podcast host would 
talk to you about something you should buy or beg you for money. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to remind you that I'm not doing that, which I know is kind of like doing it. Almost exactly the same as doing it, maybe even more annoying than doing it, but it's still, it's not doing it. Not quite. Almost, but not quite. Here's Carsey Blanton. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 